Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. And today I'm going to be joined again by one of our favorite guests, Whitney Webb, who is an amazing, prolific journalist and researcher, and whose focus in terms of what she covers has a lot of overlap with the things that I'm interested in. I remember first hearing about Whitney back when she was researching bioterrorism and sort of the fear-mongering and all the weirdness surrounding that. That was many years ago, and here you are, Whitney. You've gained quite a following since then. It's been amazing to see how much your work has gotten out there. People name drop you now on, on podcasts. It was, you know, Tim Dillon sometimes mentions you and things like that. So, so it's great to have you again. So welcome to the podcast, Whitney. Thanks. Always great to be on. Thank you. And recently, um, you've been focusing more on this idea of domestic terrorism. And I'm sort of saying that while rolling my eyes, because as we've known since 9-11 and the war on terror, this idea of terrorism as sort of a catch-all thing has been quite spuriously used uh, by not just officials, but also by the media. You know, in general, I guess one of my approaches to this, Whitney, has been since the war on terror, since 9-11, it's been sort of having this, you know, like a, a, a chain of thoughts that starts with the the basic idea that terrorism is sort of this all-encompassing term that can really include a lot of different things. It might not even mean people who are violent or people who are uh, deciding to commit violence. It can also mean uh, people who have extremist views or if you happen to have the wrong skin color or religion, such as being Muslim, and you say something that might seem a little politically too extreme, there were all these different scenarios that were sort of cropping up in my mind after 9-11 that seemed awfully close to being something that would be completely unconstitutional, well, obviously because of the Patriot Act and things like that, but just in terms of violating the First Amendment, like this gray area that had suddenly appeared where, let's just take, for example... If you're a Muslim after 9-11 and say you dressed, you know, where you looked obviously Muslim, you had brown skin, you were Arab, and you decided to, you know, rail against the Bush administration, do public events where you were sort of, you know, doing civil disobedience and things like that, um, say that someone did that around like 2002 or 2003, I think that back then, the media, a large swath of the media, would have actually characterized that person as a potential terrorist. So lucky that nobody you know, tried to do that and got arrested for it. But we did have other examples of a lot of other Muslims being entrapped. I mean, in fact, it does seem like yeah. looking back at the post-9-11 world and all these supposedly Islamic terrorists that were rounded up and plots foiled... I would say most of that appears to be FBI entrapment or FBI informants sort of egging on people to commit acts of violence mm -hmm. and even going as far as putting people in mosques to try to encourage violence and then, you know, to actually spur discussions where people would be like, yeah, maybe the U.S. deserves this or that, and then sort of lead people down a path into buying, you know, a pipe at a hardware store, then arresting them and saying they're going to make a pipe bomb. So we know that's happened countless times. Even the Pamela Geller thing where it was like the Draw Muhammad contest, 
where you know some gunmen apparently like attacked the venue that it was at. That turned out to be uh, some bizarre FBI informant thing where the FBI was there like watching and surveilling the guys like as it was happening and things like that. So you got to wonder how many of these things throughout time were like that. But, you know, it takes us to this greater discussion, Whitney, of this idea of what does being a terrorist even mean? Because, you know, you yeah. can define terrorism in all these different ways, people who commit violence because of some kind of political point of view or whatever. But in general, I think a lot of what we saw the FBI doing was was what we could almost call pre-crime. They were trying to prevent terrorism. Now, the point of terrorism traditionally has been that you really can't stop it because someone could at any time choose a soft target, say like a shopping mall or a shopping center, a sports event, and just do some horrendous act of violence and kill civilians intentionally. And there's really nothing that you can do to stop that. That's just the nature of the chaotic nature of the world that we live in. So this idea, you know, when you, when you start going down the pathway of preventing terrorism, even if it's just acting like it's to prevent, you know, these Islamic terrorist attacks, it's already creating a very extreme slippery slope that can, you know, basically encompass any American citizen. And, you know, you've done yeah. a wonderful job of cataloging how, you know, these steps that have been taken over the years. But first, Whitney, I wanted to, well, first, maybe comment on what I just said, because I know I went on a rant. But yeah. then, <laughs> but then I well, wanted there you. There are some things I'd like to say, yeah. But for sure. Mm -hmm. But then I wanted you to uh, immediately go into where we are now with the Biden administration, because at the front of this, I just want to mention that the Biden administration has actually put out a document explaining this new threat of domestic terrorism. And Merrick Garland, the attorney general, uh, did a, a speech about it. And this is something yeah. that all the Democrats and the sort of the Democrat, you know, uh, loyal media has sort of been pushing this idea of that the January 6th uh, riots were sort of an act of domestic terrorism. And there's all this pressure to call those people terrorists. So that's obviously, you know, uh, it creates a very dangerous slippery soap as well, but it's sort of connected already to the slippery slope after 9-11. But having said all that, Whitney, um, yeah, just comment on what I said at the front of this, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts on sure. that. Sure. So I would argue that the war on terror, uh, by definition, is is pre-crime in a sense, because the whole justification for it was to prevent terror acts before they can happen, right? Um, but this was applied not just to individuals, uh, ostensibly it was applied to individuals abroad, which is what, you know, we were told, right, despite the domestic surveillance apparatus um, that came out of this. But it also applied to nation states, right, or to justify drone bombings in foreign countries, um, invasions of other countries, things like that, before the terror over occurring in country X could come home and have an impact on the homeland, right? So it was sort of just a way to... Uh, justify preemptive action in the sense of, uh, you know, preemptive war, um, things like that, but also had applications that had pre-crime elements in the sense of it being applied uh, domestically. And this actually became formalized before Biden uh, put out this, uh, f created this formal uh, pivot to the war on domestic terror, this war on uh, this domestic terror strategy that came out uh, relatively recently. You had, um, uh, William uh, William Barr, Attorney General under Trump in 2019, uh, creates the DEEP program, a Disruption and Early Engagement program, which was expressly a pre-crime program that they launched at the beginning of 2020. Um, 
and arrests were made in that up until the present. Um, and what we've seen since then is the definition of, of terrorist, specifically domestic terrorist, um, just become excessively vague. And this is reflected in Biden's a domestic terror strategy um, that, you know, uh, I guess was technically authored by the Department of, of Justice um, from from how it appears. But um, it's definitely very concerning because they define um, domestic terrorists as people just based on their ideology. Um, and it's not, you know, they, 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 they totally frame it as being about white supremacist right wing terror. And, and things like that. But if you read the document itself, it, it, it says people who are against uh, corporate globalization, who oppose all forms of capitalism. And if you look at the U.S. national security state historically and the type of, quote unquote, domestic terror, domestic dissent that they've sought uh, to quash, it's uh, more often than not been uh, left wing movements historically. And so the way they define terrorist or extremist, domestic, violent extremist um, in these documents is quite um, concerning. And then we have the recent president, I think it was just a couple days ago, actually, um, there was a January, um, uh, a case related to the January uh, 6th incident, uh, whereby a person who did not commit a violent offense at all, uh, he, I think he was just charged with like obstructing something and had uh, not touched anything, had just been in the, prem the premises um, of the Senate during that event for like 15 minutes. He was openly called in uh, open court a terrorist. Uh, by the U.S. government. That's pretty significant when you consider um, all the video footage of people being waved into the Capitol um, by Capitol police officers and things like that, um, that, you know, it's becoming so easy to call someone a terrorist. Um, and there's also, you know, this talk in the domestic terror strategy from Biden that people who spread, quote unquote, disinformation uh, can also be classified as extremist and a threat to national security. And of course, um, <laughs> you know, we've seen over the past several years um, how this uh, disinformation uh, label can be applied to independent media um, as a way to promote censorship of uh, voices that are critical of U.S. empire, among other things, or that just don't fit a particular government narrative. Uh, obviously, there are forces uh, out there that aren't necessarily government controlled that do uh, put out misinformation, but it's been consistently applied uh, to censor outlets who do not as well. So I, I, I do want to stress that. So and we are very much on <laughs> near the bottom part, I would say, of the slippery slope uh, with this latest pivot um, from the Biden administration. But this pivot was actually announced last year by the national security community, uh, of course, when Trump was still president. Uh, so you can see so people can see the continuity here. This isn't just a Democrat project under Biden. This is something that started um well, you know, as we can talk about, this is something that goes back several decades, but this particular pivot that we've seen recently began under Trump, I would argue, first with Bill Barr's Deep, um, and then last year with um, some of these pivots that were made, I would encourage people who are interested to go and watch this um, February hearing into late February that was about domestic terrorism. Of course, everyone that, uh, was focused on coronavirus at the time and at the end of February 2020, um, and all, because a lot of the lockdowns and things like that only came a few weeks after that. So not a lot of people watched this hearing. 
Um, but essentially, the FBI lady there was saying that their units that have been involved in entrapping Muslim Americans were going to pivot to white Americans. And after that announcement was made, of course, there's the Governor Whitmer plot, for example, where it's now come out that uh, that whole operation was uh, excessively guided and essentially designed by FBI informants uh, to a highly significant degree. Um, so that is quite concerning to see that shift in focus from the parts of the FBI that previously um targeted Muslim Americans to target the new model for what terrorism is per the national security state. Um, is so, it really true that uh, I heard Joe Rogan saying on Abby's appearance that like 12 of the 15 people involved in that were FBI informants? Yeah, it's it's something ridiculously high. I can't remember the exact figure, but it Fuck. was quite high. And this came out earlier on the heavy involvement of the FBI in this, but the extensiveness of it is relatively uh, more recent, but obviously really concerning. But I do want to stress that this was announced publicly at a congressional hearing at the end of February. But there was also a woman at the same hearing named Elizabeth Newman, who was at DHS in the time, and she resigns um, in the uh, just I, I think like a month or two before January 6th saying that Trump is uh, egging on domestic terrorism and there's going to be some sort of thing that happens. But back in February, before she resigned and said that, she gave this very disturbing quote that I would encourage people to go and look up. She essentially said, we can see another 9-11 building and we can't quite, it's not going to be quite as bad in terms of the number of deaths or the visuals, uh, but we can see it building and we can't stop it. Uh okay. And, you know, essentially what you see right after January 6th, it, in a, the same way sort of like with, with the 9-11 narrative was set right away where, oh, it must have been Al-Qaeda before there's any investigation or anything like that. Uh, you see uh, prominent Democrats, many of whom used to be CIA analysts and, and people like that. Like I think uh, Elise Slotkin is one of these people that immediately compared January 6th to 9-11. Uh, numerous media outlets did that. Um, it was just like an immediate talking point to compare it to 9-11, despite the obvious dissimilarities between those two events. OK, um, you know, one involved the uh, collapse, <laughs> complete collapse of buildings, uh, the the deaths of uh, over 3000 people. And not it's not even counting the deaths of the people who um, were first responders and got cancer as a result uh, of, of being first responders, among other things. You know, this is like. I would argue uh, it, it's not exactly fair to make that comparison, but there was a reason for that. And I think it's, you know, to justify this pivot to domestic terror, though my big concern is, and we can get into this later, that in order to really bring this new domestic terror strategy as it's been authored into fruition, um, that there may need to be some other sort of event that produces the outrage and manufactures the consent to the green 9-11 did for bills that were already in Congress before 9-11, uh, for example, uh, to create a National Homeland Security Agency, which of course was the framework for DHS that was introduced months before 9-11 took place. There was a debate about, we don't need this um, in Congress that was quite um you know, uh, lively. And of course, after 9-11, the, the tune totally changes and things like that. So um, anyway, there's um, a lot to get into here and I def uh, in terms of the timeline. Um, but I do also want to point out that I think it's no coincidence Biden um, is president right now for all of this. And we can talk more about this later because, you know, when he was in the primary, a lot of people talked about what he did in the 90s, including, for example, the 1994 crime bill. But he was also behind the omnibus um, 
counterterrorism bill introduced after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which is the version Biden introduced, which isn't the form that was passed. It was heavily watered down, right? But the original form that he introduced into Congress is totally insane. And just as a teaser, I'll say that one of the things that bill contained is that the person who is president gets to expressly decide what person and what groups are terrorists, and that decision is unappealable by anyone. Beautiful. That is an insane amount of power. Just want to put that out there. This was what this was Biden in '95. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that I mean, and we kind of saw that already come true and be kind of slow rolled out with Obama. Like he's got a kill list. Um, you know, they made it and seem the like NDAA, it was. Yeah, they made it seem detention. like it was the CIA <laughs> who was who was identifying these people, and then Obama would just shine off on it, but. In, in essence, it really is the president deciding who's a terrorist or not. Yeah, but um, Biden was vice president for that, right? And of some course. of the other things, like the removal of habeas corpus with the 20, uh, 2012 NDAA yeah. that Obama signed, right? That was also in this bill that Biden introduced into the Senate in 1995, uh, among other things that did happen during that period. It's quite um, astounding. Also, under the Obama administration, there was the repeal um, of the Smith-Munt Act, which prevented the use of state-produced propaganda domestically. This was repealed several years ago, yes. right? Well before the Trump administration, okay. And um, it's what's interesting is that Biden's current domestic terror strategy not only calls for extreme censorship um, of, of narratives deemed to promote or exacerbate extremism, uh, and obviously well, we can imagine how the Biden administration will abuse that, but at the same time, it calls for DHS specifically to develop basically a, a far-reaching propaganda campaign uh, to counter the misinformation. Uh, so that's quite significant because that type of policy could not exist without the repeal of the smith Munt Act under Obama. Yeah, well, let's talk about the climate that's happening now, because I mean, obviously, January six was you know this really uh, it, it's everything sort of gravitates around that. Still, they're obviously resurrecting this idea of uh, you know nine eleven commission for and right now, like as we right. speak, they're having this battle over doing a commission over January six. Now, what's fascinating is some of the Republicans are finally mentioning and leaning on this idea that somehow the Capitol Police must have been in on this or allowed it to happen. Now, they're not saying it in those exact words, and they're turning it into this partisan thing where they're saying that it's Pelosi who is behind this. But in reality, it seems like whoever whoever made that happen the way that it did, and by that I mean allowed all those people in, um, didn't respond with appropriate security at all. We already know that any other protests that we've ever seen in D.C. near the Capitol building, regardless of party politics, always has more security than that. That was insane, lack of security. Mm-hmm. So it appears that it was some kind of bipartisan, more broader thing that actually happened, that, that's, that this pulled off in the way that it did. And then there's this other strange aspect where the FBI is claiming, you know, we got to stop you know, white terrorists now, while at the same time, they must have known about how much QAnon was growing online, uh, how off the rails it was getting, and they simply didn't seem to do anything to stop it. Now, I'm not saying that I want the FBI to go in and shut down some QAnon thing, but it does seem like on some level, they allowed it to happen too. And then now we're having this conversation on the right, you know, and it's kind of had the same flavor as a lot of the things that happened during the Trump era, where it does seem like the right 
in some way is over the target. You even see, you know, totally generic right wingers like Ben Garrison making a cartoon where the FBI is outside looking at binoculars into the FBI building, you know, like they're spying on themselves, like because they're the terrorists. Now, Ben Garrison is a total <laughs> fucking moron, but that, you know, that cartoon is is something that we've been talking about for years and years. So in some way, they are over the target. Now, what did you find when you were writing this article in ways that you found that like someone like, say, Chucker, who we, you know, we don't care for, but ways that he might have been over the target, saying that the FBI might have been, you know, partly responsible for this January 6th event and other ways where they're not over the target and actually missing you know, some important aspects of this. All right. So my recent article doesn't talk about January 6th specifically. um, But as far as I understand, the Tucker claim had to do with the fact that there's several individuals that were intimately involved in the January 6th event who are known to authorities, but are not to be prosecuted for a specific reason. Apparently, one of these people is a very high ranking person at Turning Point USA. That's kind of interesting to me. Um, But, you know, this has been uh, assumed to mean that several of these, if not all of them, were FBI informants. And this is, uh, you know, an assumption uh, being made specifically by a a right wing outlet. I think it's called like Revolver News, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And that's what was cited um, cited by Tucker. But it's definitely it definitely would be consistent with things with like the Governor Whitmer plot. And just the the numerous oddities that surround January 6th. Um, And I think the interest in this commission for it is to set an official narrative um, about specific things about that day. Um, Because basically, uh, there's just a lot of contradictions and things that don't make a lot of sense. Um, And so, you know, this is sort of an effort to write the definitive report and hammer out and create an official uh, narrative that's produced by Congress, right? But you just have to look... um, I would say um, in terms of like the Capitol Police thing, I mean, look at what the Capitol Police have gotten out of January 6th, though. They're essentially now in the 18th intelligence agency of the United States. They now have jurisdiction to go anywhere in the country and investigate any potential threat to a member of Congress anywhere domestically, um, not just limited to the Capitol anymore. That's quite significant. And of course, they have um, large funding increases, among other things, Um you know, that's uh, quite interesting. So, you know, if we want to be um, tinfoil uh, hat here for a moment, you know, if Capitol Police, for example, was in on it, uh, you know, would they have been told by whoever, whatever force was behind this that, you know, you let these people in and let this event happen and there's a lot more funding in it for you and there's a lot more power in it for you. I think, you know, given what we've seen transpire since then, it's definitely something to uh, consider in terms of possibilities, Uh, but it's definitely concerning. I do want to point out, though, I can't remember the company anymore, but I think you and I talked about this a while ago. It might have been on my podcast. Um, that um, the person who was in charge of the Capitol Police at the time of January 6th, who resigned shortly thereafter, had previously been like a vice president at this government contractor and the chairman of the board is Michael Chertoff, uh, which I found kind of significant considering how um, 
Before the 2020 election, Michael Chertoff was an intimate part of this transition integrity project that was predicting uh, 2020 election chaos uh, between Election Day and Inauguration Day, which of course happened along with a lot of uh, other former intelligence community members and, and military, um, high-ranking military uh, members among among other individuals. I think Colin Powell was involved with it, in this as well, right? Uh, you know, some uh, neocon forces there at work who, you know, if you look at their predictions before 9-11, for example, quite uh, predictive. So, you know, I think that may be something worth pursuing um, as well. Um, but yeah, so I think it's very possible, specifically what we what with what we've seen emerge about the Governor Whitmer plot, that as these uh, court cases uh, over January 6th progress, uh, we will probably learn more about an, an FBI role or potentially a DHS role uh, in that. Because you have to keep in mind, too, that the FBI uh, works very close. And on DHS, too, they work very closely with a variety of partners, including in the private sector and including in, quote unquote, civilian society, specifically the Anti-Defamation League. Um, is intimately involved with the FBI and also with DHS fusion centers. And at this hearing I mentioned earlier, um, the, the, the FBI lady in announcing this pivot from Muslim Americans um, you know, to, to, to white uh, American males was essentially saying, you know, that the ADL had been involved in that switch, uh, which is quite stunning if you're familiar with the ADL's um, history and how they essentially have conducted espionage on behalf of, uh, uh, against, uh, you know, uh, various activist groups in the U.S. Uh, and sent those, uh, sent that information to Mossad and the apartheid South African uh, regime when it was in power among other things uh, throughout its history. It's been even FBI documents acknowledge it to essentially be an arm of uh, Israel's government uh, in, in practice. It's a, a lot of people refer to it as sort of an extension of the Israel lobby. That's quite astounding that they're involved um, to that degree in this. <laughs> I would argue that they shouldn't be given their um, uh, partisan history. Um, but, you know, it, the, there's also this thing of the private sector. How involved is the private sector in all of this? as well as something that we had to talk about. And what gets avoided a lot, I think, in the discussion of domestic terror, uh, especially now by, you know, prominent voices on the left um, and the right, is this topic of fusion centers where you're having the DHS, the FBI, unspecified private companies and unspecified NGOs and other groups all working together to decide, you know, who's a terrorist and who's not. And fusion centers have been around for a long time. But as this uh, domestic terror uh, war on domestic terror progresses, they essentially are going to have the same functionality that, uh, you know, was actually first uh, used in the Phoenix program in Vietnam, where they had these um, intelligence um, and operation coordinating centers that were abbreviated as IOCs that were the model for what fusion centers are today. And what those centers did in, in Vietnam was essentially collate names of uh, dissidents and suspected dissidents, extremists and people with suspected extremist sympathies into databases. And then they were, you know, pursued by the, the relevant authorities um, as a part of that, uh, as, uh, as Phoenix progressed. And fusion centers are based on that model. And I would argue have, you know, uh, 
been, you could argue, have been waiting uh, to become more active in a war such as the one that the Biden administration has recently declared. But I think in order for that to gain more widespread traction among the American public, some other sort of event that outrages people to a much greater extent than January 6th did has to take place. And I think January 6th did not have the intended effect. It did for some people, specifically um, on the left, um, I think on the right, it just made people distrust mainstream media um, and the government significantly more. Um, but I and I think it did increase uh, polarization. But I don't think it created the same outrage as an event like 9-11 did, for example, no. uh, because, you know, no high death toll, no mass destruction. Uh, it didn't really uh, send fear into the hearts of people. Most people in the United States don't like Congress. You know what I mean? The approval rating of Congress is quite low. It's not the same as hitting um, you know, a, a, a target that is full of, uh, you know, a highly respected profession or group or something like that, or, you know, a civilian target where, you know, with uh, Oklahoma City bombing, for example, a daycare was targeted and children were killed. That was outrageous. Things like that. Right. Those are the types of thing, type of things that tend to inspire outrage and demands for solutions. Something must be done among the American public. January 6th didn't do that. Um, so this is why I worry that some other event um, may take place in order to push this strategy um, further, um, you know, because it, they're setting up an infrastructure here that they plan to use. Right. And I think it would, given the current climate in the U.S., it would be hard for them to justify uh, taking that where the strategy clearly shows uh, where they want to go. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to unpack before we get into like some of the, you know, the precursors, because I want you to get into more detail about uh about how we got here. I mean, because it does seem like, you know, in the nineties, obviously there was this sort of campaign to start targeting militia people and these sort of anti-government, you know, so-called extremists yeah. in the United States. And Ruby Ridge, uh, is one very famous example of that. Um, you know, the Oklahoma city bombing was another famous example of that. And that one does seem to be, uh, have some involvement or even maybe, you know, involvement by the U.S. government or may even be some kind of false flag attack. But I think what's interesting right now, Whitney, that I'm I'm failing to understand this part. And maybe I just want your opinion on this and, and how you feel about this. Because on one hand, I'm thinking, you know, it makes sense why the Biden administration would be acting this openly partisan and be, and be feeding into this perception on the right that the government is this corrupt. Like, almost like they just can't help themselves but to just be so anti-anything Trump that they don't care that they're making the entire right wing of the spectrum feel victimized. And then when you think about Trump, he was hyper-partisan as well. But then part of me is thinking, wouldn't they be able to sell this better? And wouldn't they be able to clamp these things down even better if they were more bipartisan about this and trying to like even appeal to the right a little more? Why are they being so brazen about it and making the right feel as if uh, something that they do could be perceived as uh, domestic terrorism. What, what do you think is behind that? Do you think, and this is going to sound really paranoid, but what function do you think this sort of hyperpolarization effect actually serves to benefit uh, the United States government's power? Like, is this, you know, is sort of stoking the flames of like a an ideological civil war, something that actually serves that power? I, because I, 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 I get confused sometimes, you know, sort of zooming out from yeah. it and looking at all this. 
Well, it's it's hard to know the exact answer to that, right? So all we can really do is is <laughs> is speculate <laughs> on that. Um, but if I had to guess, you know, I would say it's probably just um, an extreme divide and conquer strategy. Because if you look at um, the American political landscape, you know, maybe people, uh, I don't really know what percentage of Americans are actually uh, adamantly pro-Biden and like constantly watch MSNBC and still believe everything on there or whatever, right? But there is a big swath of people for sure on on the left and especially the right now um, who uh, just in general oppose the government, right? Or recognize massive issues are taking place that are not being addressed by the government, whether they weren't addressed by Trump or aren't being addressed by Biden. I think there's on the left anyway, people that uh, reluctantly voted for Biden that are like, wow, you made it really clear really fast that you're not going to keep any of your promises. You know, I think people like you and me uh, weren't very surprised by that. But, um, you know, some people uh, were that were, you know, all uh, fired up about, yeah, we're going to undo the Trump era. But a lot of things uh, have essentially uh, remained the same. Um, you know, some of these pet issues, uh, whether it was like things at, at you know, the U.S.-Mexico uh, border or well, pet issues isn't what I should have said, sort of like uh, uh, issues that are a focus of, of this partisan divide, you know, uh, that are very uh, polarized on the left and the right, the U.S.-Mexican border being one, right? Um, so like, you know, the, the Biden administration hasn't really done uh, much to fix the Trump situation. And there was all this outrage from the media about that and the Trump era and that outrage has disappeared. But the policies and the abuses of that system um, haven't changed to a significant degree under Biden. Right. And that's just one example. Um, so I think, you know, they need this extreme division um, and they need fear specifically among the left of the right um, and well, and also to a degree, you know, there's uh, on, on the right, specifically the conspiratorial right, this concern that everyone on the left is a communist and there's this communist CCP takeover of America and all uh -huh. of that. Right. So that is also happening on on both sides, I should, um, you know, point out. And this is obviously playing into the hands of this uh, war of on domestic terror. And if you do have some sort of civil war type scenario take place, then you easily have um, some <laughs> a very easy justification for a, a very large, very overinflated and very powerful war on domestic terror apparatus to take place. No, that's, um, I mean, that's a really interesting take. And I think you articulated, you articulated it better than I could. And I didn't really think about all those angles. I think, that's there there is some utility in this. I mean, just like you know, just like you said that they want the right to scare the left. There is yeah. something really important about that that's obviously driving or fueling this engine in the same way that Trump's election was almost like an used as almost like another nine eleven by the left or the liberal class. Yeah. You know, like mm -hmm. it, him being elected in and of itself was like a terrorist attack on the country. They yes. tried to make it that scary. Um and, and, you know, why did they do that? Why did they – everyone's like, oh, my God, they had Trump derangement syndrome. They just lost their shit and couldn't help well, themselves. But not even that. But with Russiagate, it was like Putin's taking over America in those that same too, circles, yeah. right? And on the right, you have the CCP is taking over America, you know? So um, totally. this is something that's been engineered very obviously uh, to take place on, on both sides and that either side is associating – uh, the other quote unquote bad side with one of the U.S.'s two main adversaries, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, that's it. it, it it's it hilarious, is actually, in my opinion, when you think about the utility this serves to the national security state. Like, but uh, then you would almost think. <laughs> then you would almost think. I guess my only counter to that is, wouldn't it be better if the right thought that everything was controlled by China and Russia, and the left also thought that, like. Is that the ultimate goal here is just to get everybody so paranoid? Well I, <laughs> well, I think for the polarization, they need to see different enemy countries behind all the chaos and, sure. and fuckery in the U.S., right? So if they were agreeing about who's behind the fuckery, uh, it would be harder to polarize and they might find common ground, you know? That's really fascinating. Yeah, and I don't – I'm trying to think of any historical parallel here in other really divided eras of this country, and it's hard to think of one where – each side had their own foreign bogeyman, you know. Yeah, well, in the U.S. it's hard, but you have to think back to the Cold War and how the U.S. has done this exact divide and conquer strategy in other countries. And always mm, there yeah. is one partisan side that become the guerrillas, the guerrilla fighters, right, or the paramilitaries or whatever that are fighting the state power. OK, so the state power right now in the U.S. is quote unquote, left. Okay, Biden's supposed to be left, yeah. you know. And so who's going to fight the quote unquote leftist in power? It's going, it's being set up to be the right, essentially. And that's what the Civil War narrative is. And so yet yeah, this may be unprecedented in recent U.S. history, but this is something the U.S. has engineered. Uh, it, you know, just look at Latin America in the 1980s, for example. Um, it, it, it happened a lot. Um you know, so they, they know how to do this. They did it in Vietnam as well. Um, this is something that the what, but historically, you know, the CIA was targeting um, the left abroad in other countries. Sure. So now they've sort of through uh, 9-11 and Russiagate, uh, the Trump era and all of this have essentially uh, have have the left or people who identify as left in the U.S., um, you know, they're identifying most with the exact same organizations that historically have indiscriminately murdered leftists <laughs> abroad uh, or tried to totally uh, infiltrate and destroy leftist movements in the United States. If you remember back to like the 60s, for example, with like Operation Chaos and COINTELPRO, it was like the Black Panthers who were being heavily targeted, targeted anti-war demonstrators, people that opposed U.S. military intervention or support for paramilitaries or uh, like right-wing paramilitaries in Latin America and, and things like this. Um, you know, that's that's what happened there. So it's very interesting to see how now the left, um, you know, especially in the Trump era, you know, that the resistance heroes of the left, I mean, some of them were people like, the CIA director, John Brennan, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, or Bill Crystal, uh, totally nuts. So, you know, in a way they've sort of made the establishment left, uh, you know, they've, they've merged in a way with the neocons who were anti-populist neocons or whatever, who oppose Trump. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they become part of the quote unquote resistance and feed a lot of these talking points and completely alter what it means to be quote unquote establishment left in the U S today. Um, so I think that's pretty significant because when we talk about the establishment left in the U.S., I mean, Obama said it himself when he was president, you know, like back a couple decades ago, we would have been like right from center. Uh, so I don't understand why people are calling me far left. And I mean, that's not uh, inaccurate, really, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, identifying as a, as a liberal or a leftist and supporting Biden, the DNC and all of that, it doesn't necessarily mean the same as it as it did, you know, to support the DNC and the Democratic candidate in the 70s or the 60s or something like that. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, it's a very different landscape 
um, politically, even though the labels technically remain the same, the ideology behind it, what people on the left are willing to support, it's quite significant. And I think Russiagate was a big part of that, you know, like, oh, we have to take it and stick it to Putin, whatever it takes, you know, you know, sort of like a militaristic um, uh, vein sort of injected into the left in in that sense. Uh, in a, yeah, Trump derangement syndrome, I think, may have had something to do with that for sure. But I also think, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, having people like Bill Crystal become like the voice of the one of the resistance leaders and all this stuff when he's the architect of you know yeah the head one of the heads of PNAC and stuff like this I mean it's just nuts. You know the strangeness of all of this uh, it does seem like they they are making a show out of targeting you know sort of the Trump people. Uh, they're also giving away the overall goal, it seems like, in this domestic terrorism paper where they're, they don't say they're going after socialists and communists in it, but it says people who criticize global capitalism and clap, capitalism, like extreme anti-capitalism critics. I mean, that's that's what's being socialist and communist yeah. is. So, And also extreme environmental groups are oh, yeah. there as well, or environmental groups deemed extremists, which could easily be something like, I don't know, Extinction Rebellion or even Sunrise Movement, maybe, depending on how far they want to take that. Mm-hmm. It's like optically, it's like they don't care about making this seem like they're targeting the right. But in reality, it's just a way to basically just keep any you know, quote unquote, extreme dissent, you know, sort of quelled as much as possible. I mean, that's what seems like the ultimate goal here is. Right. And because they're aiming at both sides and the strategy, there's what they need is a specific contingent of the American public that backs this. Right. So, you know, the people that are tend to be like centrist or that buy the official narrative about everything to a significant degree, um, the people that get all their news from the TV, um, from mainstream media specifically and, and people like that. That's who they're really counting on to be able to manipulate and to manufacture consent with. They do not need the support of the majority of the U.S. population. Yeah, no, I think um, I think you're right. And it's yeah, it is. A, it is strange to see how, you know, how CNN really does just seem like it's the polar opposite of Fox News in a in a weird way now. Like it used to just be this more you know, trying to just push out general propaganda it didn't seem to be partisan. And now it's, it really is very partisan. So it is a strange era we're still living in, but I want you to take us back, Whitney, to, I don't know. I mean, this predates the nineties. Obviously I, I use the nineties as a starting point for my awareness of sort of this focus inward on domestic terrorism before nine eleven. But how do you think that this really started to get rolling and what is this Biden announcement and paper, you know, uh, what is this building off of um, that's come before it? Right. So I think the best starting point uh, to discuss that is what I mentioned earlier, the CIA's uh, Phoenix program in Vietnam. And the authority on this, of course, is Douglas Valentine, uh, whose book, The Phoenix Program, is the um, the go to book about this program. he is uh, amazing. He basically uh, posed as someone who was really sympathetic and, and, and approved of CIA activity in Vietnam in order to get access to a bunch of the uh, former case officers and program managers and top people in the CIA involved in Phoenix program and got them to spill the beans on everything and then publish this damning expose of the whole thing. He basically used like CIA media tactics against them. It's just I find that really brilliant. Um 
But basically what the Phoenix program was for all intents and purposes was a way to reorganize South Vietnamese society um, in a way that involved the use of, of terror, essentially, um, and to basically control the population, prevent, uh, in their minds, insurgency uh, by creating this insane climate of fear that you better toe the line and step in line or you could be wrapped up in this this phoenix program uh apparatus that that grew so essentially um what the cia did there is i sort of mentioned this 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 precursor for um the, the current fusion centers of today so basically they established these coordinating centers that brought together all the uh, south vietnamese police cia officers uh u.s military people um and, you know, other authorities in, in South Vietnam, uh, they created a network of informants just everywhere, right? And so informants would, would you know, issue reports, and so would these other um, actors involved, and all of this would go into a database of who... Um, is an extremist or a sympathizer with North Vietnam um, or someone who, you know, was accused of this or that that doesn't support our agenda um, and things like that. And it, and it, you know, initially was supposed to be focused on insurgency, but by the end of it also included people who were opponents or deemed, uh, you know, to be against, for whatever reason, the leadership of South Vietnam, not necessarily having to have sympathies with the North Vietnamese, just opposed to the ruling structure. And so estimates vary about how many people actually ended up dying in this. Um, from what I understand from Doug Valentine, uh, it's around 40,000 people. Um, a lot of them were probably innocent because it wasn't very hard to get on these databases at all. And once you were in the database, your life was essentially ruined. Not everyone that was wrapped up in uh, this Phoenix uh, apparatus uh, died necessarily, though a lot of them did. But, you know, you could be sent to prison. You could be interrogated. Um uh, you know, with just uh, subjected to really horrible things. Um, and, you know, and in some cases with the killings, right, they would go to a village where there was a su suspected, um, you know, dissident or insurgent or whatever, but they would also kill people who were close to them, their close contacts. So they would like kill their families, uh, their neighbors, anyone that was deemed as potentially supporting them in some way. And they did this very loosely there. Okay. And basically the end result was to create a society that was really ruled by terror at the end of the day. And this is also uh, one of the first examples we really have of the national security state using technology for the purpose of uh, uh cataloging and identifying and then uh, essentially exterminating or targeting in some other way um, domestic dissidents or subversives. Um, and this, of course, <laughs> continues in a big way and is turned uh, against the U.S. populace um, during the Iran-Contra period, which we can go to in a second. Um, now, what's interesting about that is um, if you've read Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley, you will know also that this is essentially that this Vietnam era was where the national security state in the U.S. Uh, sort of birthed the idea for what would become the Internet. But initially in this period saw the Internet and these databases and all of this as a brilliant tool for counterinsurgency. And I would argue where we are today with the domestic terror strategy of Biden and also with a lot of these prosecutions on January 6th, focusing so heavily on people's social media posts, what they've said on Facebook, Facebook events, things like that. I mean, arrests were made not even in January 6th from the Capitol, uh, but elsewhere there was like a leftist. I, his last name is Baker. I forget her for his first name. Uh, but he was essentially 
um, arrested for creating a Facebook event um, that, uh, and just for posting the event really, that was going to be a counter protest, uh, framed as being a potentially violent counter protest to uh, Trump supporters at um, a Capitol, I think it was in Florida, if I remember correctly. Um, so, you know, using people's public posts on the internet, um, you know, to carry out domestic terror prosecutions, essentially, uh, you could argue that the uh, initiation of that by combining the work of someone like Yasha Levine and Doug Valentine on this period, you know, you could argue it, it was born in Vietnam, which I think is kind of significant. And yeah, just while you were saying that, I don't know why this just popped in my head, but like, have you been paying attention? This is totally out of left field. So sorry. I, I want you to keep going <laughs> no, with what fine. you're saying. But do you know if they even caught those the those uh, supposed people who planted the pipe bombs outside the Capitol building? I don't building? think they did. I don't think they did. Because how funny is that that it's like um, the surveillance camera footage of it. I mean, and just the gut feeling that I get when looking at that is that it does look like it's a cop of some kind putting them there disguised as some kind of protester or whatever. Um, I have no idea if that's the case, but it is interesting that they never, it's all, all these other random people who went in the building are getting, you know, put on trial, but this, these people didn't get caught. I mean, how convenient, but sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I tend to agree with that, but I mean, you know, uh, can we rule out that there was some government related actor that may have been responsible for that? No, because there are precedents for that. Or with the FBI allowing terror attacks to go live for, you know, I would uh, encourage people to, they're interested in events like that. I think one of the most compelling, um, it involves the the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. Oh, yeah. In terms of uh, obvious FBI foreknowledge and them allowing um, an, an event terroristic in nature to take place for an ex express political purpose. But um and obviously there's a reason that bombing is never talked about, you know, the World Trade Center, it's just 9-11, um, and that's it, the 93 uh, World Trade Center. I, I never hear people talk about it, but it's. It, I think that's for a reason. Um, but anyway, um, so, you know, there was obviously this, this shift in Vietnam in terms of the CIA's um, organization of these types of activities to create sort of this cohesive strategy of going after subversives that relied primarily on terror itself. I mean, this was really a terror program by the CIA. The, the CIA was being a terrorist organization in this instance. I think that's pretty um, pretty clear um, from how Phoenix, um, uh, you know, how it its impact, uh, what it was designed to do and, and, and its consequences um, in society. Um, but I really think it's interesting the way Douglas Valentine frames it um, as a way to, you know, the CIA saw this as the best way to reorganize society in a way that was conducive to U.S. or specifically the CIA's policy agenda in Vietnam. Okay, so they seeing this type of program as a way to uh, remake society in, a, in, in an image that's more conducive to the national security state or U.S. empire, um, you know, I think that's a pretty significant way of looking at it, and that's, a, that's Doug's analysis of it. Um, and we can get into more of how that could potentially, uh, how people involved in Phoenix, for example, could um, have seen that when they, uh, you know, essentially designed the pivot to Homeland Security um, in the late 90s. But, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So anyway, um, 
The Phoenix program was not an isolated incident. Um, Doug, Doug Valentine does point out that at the same time they were doing this in Vietnam, they were using databases uh, domestically and things like Operation Chaos to collate information on uh, subversives in the U.S. specifically during that period in the 1960s, specifically people who opposed the war, um, and also groups like the Black Panthers, civil rights activists, and groups like that during that period, okay? So... Um, but anyway, uh, abroad, that type of uh, program that is very similar to the Phoenix program continues in Latin America in what is remember what is known as Operation Condor, uh, which basically ran from the early 70s, technically from like, I think, uh, 1975, but there's indications it may have started a little earlier in 1974 um, through the 1980s. And, you know, Condor was basically a multinational information sharing program and uh, subversive, quote unquote, subversive, uh, essentially hunting and extermination program in Latin America of people who, uh, not unlike Vietnam, were deemed to be uh, subversive, specifically leftists and sympathizers of leftists. And some of these, uh, and by the way, all of the participating countries were U.S.-backed military dictatorships. Um, and the U.S. was basically their main weapons supplier during this period as well, though um, they also had the involvement, you know, of, of European governments and arming them and also the state of Israel. And actually, at some point in Operation Condor, the U.S. sort of pulled out um, of a lot of operations that had done in relation to Operation Condor, supporting an auxiliary support. And actually, Israel ended up taking that over uh, towards the end of uh, Operation Condor. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they, they, they tend, uh, even today in Latin America, there are like a lot of police forces that are trained by the IDF um, in, in Latin America. Chile's is, is one, and that's why in the, the 2019 protest against neoliberalism in Chile, you saw just a ton of protesters shot in the eye. Uh, this was something that they were taught by, um, you know, the IDF and Israeli police that um, work with um Chilean police and also um, you so know, they, a lot of these. Um, so the groups, IDF, oh, sorry, the IDF is sent in when they need to shoot people, protesters in the eye, and to uh, help rescue people from a mysterious condo collapse. Well, okay, so the condo collapsing, uh, yeah, the IDF involvement there was pretty weird. But in terms of like Chile, like the example I just mentioned, it wasn't like the IDF being brought in to do that. Uh, but the Chile, the the Chilean carabineros, as they're called, the like federal police, uh, receive training yeah, from okay, them. Okay. Yeah, so Sorry, yeah, was... so it's 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 slightly different. <laughs> yeah, but the condo thing, some of it is a little weird. Uh, like the developer being involved in this really high level um, uh, in Jinsa, but that's a story for another day. Um, yeah, let's save that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's save that. So uh, yeah, I don't want to like confuse people too much, but anyway. Um, so basically, Operation Condor um, was arguably Phoenix, but on an even bigger scale, whereas you had Phoenix take place um, in a fairly localized manner in South Vietnam specifically. You had Operation Condor take place between multiple countries, Chile, Argentina, uh, Bolivia, I think Paraguay as well, and, and some other countries. Um, there were several. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, so sorry for that. Um, but they were all working together. And that and the idea was that, you know, if a dissident, a subversive, someone who was part of the Communist Party before the military coup that installed Pinochet, if they want to escape uh, into another country, this prevents them from doing so. Right. They still get caught and they get sent back to the country they're from for imprisonment. 
uh, torture and in many cases execution. Um, and a lot of people uh, are probably familiar with one of the uh, most famous execution methods, the so-called uh, one-way helicopter rides, uh, which allegedly were inspired by um, uh, French war crimes that took place during the Algerian War. And actually, there was a lot of involvement with uh, uh, French in intelligence uh, with Operation Condor to a significant degree. And what's fascinating to me, and a lot of people don't know this about Operation Condor, um, declassified documents, I think, uh, that came out a few years ago show that um, the UK, France, and um, I guess West Germany, uh, all visited Buenos Aires, uh, the capital of Argentina, at the height of Operation Condor because they wanted to implement Operation Condor in Europe for the same purpose. They wanted to bring it to the so-called Western democracies to uh, stop communism during the Cold War. Okay, so this was never something from the perspective of national security states in the West, something that they really saw as just being exclusive to the developing world. I really want to stress that. Okay, and this was going on in the late 70s and the early 80s. Um, so I think that's pretty significant. Um, the death toll about Operation Condor is uh, the subject of much debate, but it's very gross to me to see that when it's reported on by mainstream media today, including by quote-unquote left-leaning uh, outfits like uh, The Guardian in the UK, uh, downplay the death toll of Operation Condor to be like in the mere, you know, like a couple thousand tops. Uh, that's insane. Um, from what we know, it was most likely around 60,000, but there's estimates that have it much higher. Most of those deaths took place in Argentina specifically, um, and the consequences of what happened in Argentina uh, specifically are, are very significant. There are actually, There's actually a group called... Um, the grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, where basically these grandmothers would go and demand to find out what happened to their sons, but also what happened to their grandchildren, because they would kidnap, they would kidnap in, in, uh, as part of Operation Condor pregnant women. And because they were a pro-life dictatorship, a Catholic military dictatorship, they would allow these women to give birth, uh, but then they would immediately kill them and then give their baby to a uh, um, a family that supported the, the dictatorship. Um, so these grandmothers have been looking for their uh, grandchildren for decades, um, and they're still finding them all the time, you know. So this is something that still has very real consequences into the present um, and just destroyed families um, and, and innocent. I mean, a lot of people that, that were killed in Operation Condor, uh, even like the Guardian, for example, they frame it as people who were probably guerrilla, guerrillas, uh, guerrilla fighters are involved in some sort of anti-government activity overtly, but that's not true at all. Uh, all you have to do is look at the example of Chile, for example, um, the people that were killed by the Pinochet dictatorship as part of Operation Condor and not. Um, you know, uh, famous musicians like Victor Jara were killed. Um, he wasn't involved in any sort of militant military uh, activity at all. He like did uh, ballets and theater and was a was a nationally loved musician. Right. So it's very hard to say that he was a combatant. But a lot of these people were students uh, that happened to be members at one point or another of either the Communist Party or another, um, you know, or a, a socialist party. You know, essentially socialists and communists were equally bad in the eyes of these governments. Um, and if you were deemed to have sympathies to someone who was a leftist, not necessarily for their political ideology or for other reasons, you could be put on this list. And, you know, as someone that has, has spent, you know, 
most of my adult life in Latin America, I can tell you quite a few stories from people whose grandparents or parents had experience, direct experiences uh, with this machine. Uh, one of them being, um, you know, I had a friend whose grandma, uh, he openly said his grandma was not a nice person, uh, and this is quite demonstrated by this anecdote, um, that she had a neighbor she didn't like, and she essentially reported them for being a communist sympathizer with no evidence just to basically get them taken out. Oh, Jesus right. Christ. So how often did that happen, um, you know, in these societies? It's uh, it's just, uh, but it shows you that there was no investigation into whether these alleged claims against these people were even true. There weren't trials, right? The, the people just got, uh, it was a dragnet, right? For people uh, to create reorganized society using a climate of fear to encourage, uh, you know, uh, acquiescence to authority and complete obedience to the state. Um, and, and, you know, that's essentially what happened. And, and in places like Chile, you can still see the impacts of this. Obviously, the generation that was born after the Pinochet dictatorship ended in, the, in 1990, you know, they have a very different perspective. But the, uh, the generations that were like adults or young adults during uh, the Pinochet era are like, they don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers, dude. Uh, they're like not interested in, in conflict at all. They're just like, leave me alone. I'll do it. Just leave me alone, dude. You know, um, and it, it's pretty, the, the difference is very stark, I would argue, and generationally. And I think, you know, a lot of it owes to the dictatorship because people that did speak up or did try to change things, uh, at least in the, for most of that, uh, you know, the Pinochet era, uh, met very grisly ends. I mean, obviously, there are some people who were tortured and, and kidnapped and tortured and let go uh, who, you know, ex are still around to tell their stories. But there's a lot who aren't. And we don't know the, the whole death toll either, because in addition to the ex estimated, you know, 60,000 or so who were killed, there's a lot who were just disappeared. And no one knows how many disappeared there really are um, and what happened to them Uh it's uh, just a total mess. So anyway, I just wanted to comment really quick on the on the helicopter thing in the Pinochet regime. Um, just the irony of how a lot of proud boys, I remember, were walking around wearing the shirts that said free helicopter rides for Antifa. Yeah, gross. While, yeah. while simultaneously, a lot of people on that side were saying, you know, classify Antifa as domestic terrorism. And it's so, just so fascinating that pr the proud boys become this sort of artificially signal boosted you know, domestic terror threat, you know, not just after January 6th, but even before they became this like weird focus of the mainstream media. Like they were the ones like boosting them. It's like the Proud Boys were, I mean, yeah, they were idiotic and fucking dumb, but like they were not, I mean, to make them like that seem that big was just very odd. I mean, and then now it makes sense why they would do that sort of. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's meant to, like, uh, trigger people on, on the left, obviously. And it's definitely, you know, I was upset to see that stuff on T-shirts because I know people who've lost family members that way, I'm right? Sure. And when you learn about exactly what happened to these people before they were pushed out of the helicopter and stuff, I mean, it, it's, it's sick. And I frankly uh, would say that regardless of your political ideology, if you support that type of grisly torture and, and murder uh, on people who don't agree with you politically, uh, you have a serious problem and you're an authoritarian and you can be an authoritarian whether you are quote unquote left or quote unquote right. It doesn't really matter. And these elements 
uh, in our in in the political spectrum in the U.S. that support that. I don't really care what side you're on. Uh, that is hugely problematic to me, and I think it really should be to anyone uh, because anyone who supports the type of horrible activity that took place in, during under the Pinochet regime, I, I you know if you're going to justify that and, and you wish that on people, I personally find that uh, very hard to forgive. Um, well, just I sort just of goes feel. back to the old adage of like, don't ever, you know, do let that your government do something horrible to your political enemies just because you despise them. I mean, it's it's sort of it'll just always come back to haunt you if someone else takes power that happens to be part of your political en- the group of your political enemies. I mean, it doesn't it's it just completely illogical to allow yeah. things to to allow the government to clamp down on someone, you know, whether you think they're. Th- you know, even if you think, uh, it, it, but it but it harkens back to the idea of fear mongering. I mean, this is how a lot of this is done, at least how it's been done in the United States. I'm sure that some of the things you're talking about employed these techniques too. But it's like making it seem like, you know, I'm sure in some of the situations you're describing, they make it appear that the communists are this dangerous threat, and that they do need, and then people actually do buy into it. You know, to some extent. So, yeah. I mean, but continue with what you're saying. But uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing I, I did, uh, I don't know if I uh, drove it home enough because I was sort of just talking about the realities of it because I think that's important for people to understand. Uh, so the CIA designed and planned Condor. This was not the idea of Pinochet or Videla in Argentina or any of these other um dictators of the period. First of all, most of these military coups were imposed in those countries by the U.S., uh, with Chile being probably the most well-known example, the coup of September 11th, 1973. Um, but, uh, so, but that, you know, there's indications that the, the coup in Brazil, I think in 1964, uh, that installed that military dictatorship that was active during this period, and, and the one in Argentina, um, you know, there's indications of U.S. involvement in all of those. So, and even the ones that they aren't, you know, known to have been involved in uh, directly or indirectly, they funded, they uh, uh, sold arms and weapons to them that were used as part of this program, right? And so, but it's important to point out that after Phoenix ends, they go and design this in the early 70s, not long after Vietnam has ended, really, um, and then implement this in another test bed, but on a bigger scale that involves several nations sharing information together. And with Biden's domestic terror strategy, you actually see that in there as well, that this is not actually as domestic as they make it out to be. They openly say that this is going to be a multi-nation effort with information sharing taking place between uh, allied governments. Uh, and I would argue that those allied governments are most likely the Five Eyes countries, uh, which if I remember correctly is uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, the U.S. and the U.K., and then Israel um, are the most likely um involved parties there, but that was very concerning to me to see in this domestic terror strategy, this idea of information sharing between uh, nations, because it definitely has uh, aspects of Condor to it. But the, U- the Condor wouldn't have, ex- is, it wouldn't have existed without the CIA and without the U.S. government. So I want to make that really clear. Israel, I mean, Israel needs to know about uh, the QAnon shaman and all of his whereabouts and activities <laughs> for the past th- several well, years. Well, to get off topic for a second and talk about QAnon shaman, didn't Biden say that in order to take on the U.S. government, you have to have like nukes and stuff? And then we're also supposed to believe that QAnon shaman was like, you know, almost overthrew the government on January yeah. 6th with no nukes, you know, uh, just some just uh, silly conflicting narratives from the sitting president. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> 
Uh, I forgot exactly where I was um, going with this. But anyway, um, Operation Condor, I think, is, is very important because it shows that, you know, you have to know that the Phoenix program led to Operation Condor, okay? Uh, and then you have to know that when Operation Condor ended in the 1980s, the U.S. government started developing the same program for use domestically in the U.S., and it was known as the Continuity of Government Protocols um, and this was developed as part of the Iran-Contra scandal. And a lot of people don't know about it because uh, there was actually a question asked to Oliver North during the Iran-Contra hearings about this. And mm. the question was shut down. And, and the guy was like, that touches on highly, uh, the speaker, I think, said this touches on highly sensitive classified matters. And he uh, prevented the questioning uh, line of questioning from, from continuing, which is pretty significant. But basically, this continuity of government protocol could be activated in the event of a, a, a vaguely defined national emergency or some sort of threat to uh, the status quo. And that could have been something as simple as widespread, nonviolent inter, uh, opposition to U.S. military intervention abroad. <laughs> Oh, it's so okay. funny. I mean, it's just so funny because what you're going off of here is these basically are mostly known as assassination programs. I mean, Fe Opera Operation yeah. Phoenix. So to think that, I mean, that the U.S. government probably does have something, maybe not on paper. I mean, maybe they do, but that is like, you know, I hate to say like Alex Jones, FEMA coffin level contingency plan. Like <laughs> if if we get too rowdy here in this country and threaten their power, then of course they're going to do something to us. I mean, that's just a sort of a hyperbolic example, but. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want to compare this necessarily <laughs> to like Alex Jones. Right. But if you look at Phoenix and you look at Condor, essentially those were based off of databases of dissidents. And so what continuity of government in the 1980s during the Reagan era resulted in was a database like that for us quote unquote subversives called main core and main core still exists today um i'll get into that in a moment and how it's changed over time but i just want to say the people who developed this weren't necessarily a uh, direct part of the well not everyone that was involved was officially part of the reagan administration okay but they are some names that you will find familiar so in 1987 this was actually published in the miami herald um they essentially report were one of the few mainstream media outlets with the balls at the time, really, to report on what had come out about continuity of government programs um, during that period. And they described the people developing it um, as a, this is a quote, a virtual parallel government outside the traditional cabinet departments and agencies that began operating almost from the day Reagan took office. <laughs> okay. Interesting. And this included people like uh, the then director of the CIA, Bill Casey, but it also included um, Dick Cheney, who was not in office at the time, and included Donald Rumsfeld, who was not officially in office in the time, though he did do some, he did serve as like an envoy for some Middle East stuff uh, for Ronald Reagan and was involved in selling anthrax to Saddam Hussein. That becomes important later <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons, because it's basically the basis of the WMD claim was that Saddam Hussein has anthrax and who sold it to Saddam Hussein. And how could they say that he had anthrax? Well, because Donald Rumsfeld sold it to him on behalf of Reagan. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, that's for more of a discussion on uh, the anthrax attacks, really. Um, but of course, you know, the bioterrorism thing is all related to this, but I don't want to get too uh, off topic. So anyway, 
This parallel government, according to the Miami Herald, was essentially responsible for Iran-Contra because they were uh, the masterminds behind the arming of Nicaraguan rebels. Mm. So that's essentially uh, what that means. But they also drafted martial law plans for national emergencies. And that's essentially what continuity of government is, as well as the monitoring of U.S. citizens who were considered potential security risks. Okay. Oh, another person involved, by the way, was James Woolsey. And for what I understand, he uh, wasn't involved. Uh, I, he wasn't CIA director until the Clinton administration, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, the early 90s. So he wasn't CIA director yet, uh, but he was involved uh, in these uh, continuity of government plans. Okay. Um, and so essentially what they were doing was creating sort of like the infrastructure for your Phoenix program that didn't go live then. Uh, but it's essentially been on the books since then, and that is very concerning, and that's why this pivot we're seeing now with the Biden administration should really alarm everyone, specifically people on the left, because even though they are framing it as being about white supremacist terrorists, the historical targets of these individuals behind it in the U.S. and also of the CIA and these other groups that implemented these programs abroad, it's the left every time. Okay. And, and the way the domestic terror strategy is set up um, through the Biden administration, they leave it wide open to prosecute people on the left. So this is not something that's just going to be going after uh, people deemed to be white supremacists. Okay. This is definitely something that's going to be very far reaching in its implications and essentially convert the U.S. government into a dictatorship. But anyway, um, I do want to talk a little bit about this database, but I'll uh, don't I want to give you some time to comment because I am kind of a. Uh, rambling a bit i mean yeah it is interesting that that there were these continuity and government plans in place and if i'm not mistaken wasn't this like not too long after the church committee sort of uh exposed a lot of the the, the idea of government surveilling activists in the country yeah it, yeah so the, the church committee exposed the cia's domestic surveillance programs as part of the sure. uh, what were called the family jewels of the cia yeah um, and that was uh, i forget the exact year of the church committee but i think it was like uh like 77 78 somewhere in mm -hmm. that ballpark it was before the 80s yeah but not that uh so not that long before this sure mm -hmm. but the information about continuity of government so that was that essentially began from what we know, around like 82, 83. So it began shortly after the church committee in a sense, but it wasn't like that uh, Miami Herald article I was just referencing, right? The revelations about it didn't really come out till Iran-Contra started to be investigated. And so that was in the later 80s. So there, there was like a gap in terms of media coverage about this type of stuff uh, coming out. But I do want to talk about the database because it's, um, as, I, as I said earlier, it's still around today. It's called Main Core. Um, and essentially, um, Chris Ketchum, who's one of the few uh, journalists to write about this in a mainstream publication. He's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he did a lot he, of Israeli art student uh, investigative stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really, really thorough. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's part of why the outlet he wrote for Radar ended up getting shut down. That's just my, and probably this article too. Mm, interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, apparently Jeffrey Epstein was one of the funders of it. <laughs> oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember um, Radar Online vaguely, but yeah, not, not well, but yeah. Well, no one knew Epstein then when it was still around, you know, so mm -hmm. I think that's part of why. But anyway, um, so basically Chris Ketchum describes 
main core. He's quoting a senior government official with high-ranking security clearance who was in five different presidential administrations from Reagan all the way to... So no, this has been something that has continued through Reagan, okay? He calls it, quote, a database of Americans who often for the slightest and most trivial reason are considered unfriendly and who in a time of panic might be incarcerated. The database database can identify and locate perceives in perceive, sorry perceived enemies of the state almost instantaneously. Okay, and this is in two thousand eight. Yikes! Yeah, so this was originally developed by these people like Oliver North, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, James Woolsey, and a bunch of these uh, Reaganite people who committed crimes. As part of Iran-Contra, literal criminals, they were all pardoned by Bill Barr, uh, the mop-up man for the CIA, essentially, um, throughout his entire career, who stonewalled the church committee we were just talking about. That was his first stint in government, was being a CIA lawyer during the church committee, preventing uh, Congress from investigating them properly. And then he pardons all of the Iran-Contra criminals. Fun guy. Uh, Fascinating. I mean, just commenting really quick on that that quote, that's really chilling people who are deemed unfriendly, you know, could be incarcerated in a time of panic. Just that alone to me is, is a very chilling statement. It, it really, and, and I, I don't, I'm not bringing up Alex Jones again to associate this with kookiness because it's <laughs> not, it's just that, you know, that those are the things that I remember the, you know, cherry picking just the, the sort of the, some of the things that are based on kernels of truth that Alex Jones used to talk about, you know, this idea that the government obviously does have contingency plans in place for if shit really goes down in this country, if it does destabilize or whatever you want to call it, they are going to probably round up, quote unquote, dissonance. And and what this database you're talking about appears to be a, a variation of what I just described. So it is very yeah. disturbing to imagine a scenario like that playing out. And like he said, for the slightest of reasons, or I don't know what the exact words were. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. And mm-hmm. I'm, I've already been harassed by the FBI for making a fake beheading video. So obviously I'm on that list. You're probably on that list. Oh, even I'm though, definitely Even not. though you're not living in the United <laughs> States right now. Yeah, reporting on this stuff has always made me really hesitant to go back to the U.S. I'm just going to uh, sure. <laughs> leave blame it you. like that. Yeah, um, but I'm in the U.K. right now. You know, I'm probably be safer off in Mexico probably at this point. Anyway, um, so in talking about what these trivial reasons are, in 1993, uh, Wired uh, magazine expanded on that in an article on uh, these continuity of government issues. Um, and really, because this was this is also intimately related to the Promise software scandal. I'm not going to get into Promise today. That directly involved Robert Maxwell and the Maxwell family, by the way. So if mm-hmm. you're interested, I would encourage you to go read up on that. The, the fourth part of my Epstein series uh, talks about Promise pretty in depth. Um, but it was essentially a software program that basically was a, a prototype to what Palantir does for the U.S. intelligence community today. Okay, so um, according to Wired, um, basically using Promise sources, this is a quote from there. Sources point out North, meaning Oliver North, could have drawn up lists of anyone ever arrested for a political protest, for example, or anyone who had ever refused to pay their taxes. Compared to Promise. Richard Nixon's enemies list or Senator Joe McCarthy's blacklist look downright crude. That's wild. And this is in the early 90s. This is the earliest form of this. So um, since we're sort of going um, uh, chronologically, I don't want to get too um, 
detailed about how how Maine core is today, but according to these articles that came out uh, in 2008, like Chris Ketchum's, um, senior government officials at that time said that the approximate number of unfriendly, quote-unquote, Americans on that database was about estimated to be at about 8 million people. Jesus So Christ. that's not a small number. Okay. Wow. Um, and um, so, but what's, what's important here is that um, COG, uh, abbreviation for continuity of government being COG, um, was activated briefly after 9-11 by none other than Dick Cheney, who helped design it. Um, and continuity of government as it exists today in this main core thing, uh, main core was seen running on White House computers after 9-11. Um, and essentially today it's believed to contain literally everything that has been, uh, data mined about your life from the internet or by other means as part of this, uh, domestic surveillance apparatus after 9-11. Um, all of that information, if you are on the list is included in this, all of that is in this database about you if you are on this list of unfriendly Americans. Great. Um, so, yeah. So that's essentially when you think of these uh, dom domestic spying, you know, um, uh, programs of the NSA and all of this stuff, right? Um, the point that gets left out there is that that information gets fed into this database. Um, if, if you, the person, uh, you know, are on this list, um, of main core. Okay. So that, that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but being on main core in of itself, uh, officially anyway, according to these government officials, isn't necessarily a death sentence. It just means that you can be, uh, targeted for heightened surveillance. You can, uh, be brought in to be questioned and you can be potentially detained or now indefinitely detained because of the, uh, laws on the books. Okay. So, um, I'm just gonna, uh, leave the mention of it there, but essentially the successor to the promise use of main core, it's has since been replaced by Palantir. And Palantir, as a company, has direct ties to the Iran-Contra crowd, which is no coincidence. Wasn't one of those purposes that Promise served was to essentially try to predict sort of uh, potential attacks or um, events based on like stock market and all these different um, components of data mining? Like, mm, I, I don't recall that from what I understand, promise is just a way uh, where you can search uh, multiple databases all at once and I synthesize uh, this mass of data in a way that wasn't available previously. Mike Rupert used to used to talk about promise in his in his stuff. And that's how he it's described very significant. it. So, yeah. It's a very significant event in U.S. history, but it's it was the subject of a massive cover up by Bill Barr. <laughs> who was attorney general under George H.W. Bush. Yeah, that's one. And there's no, it's no coincidence that he was brought in, I would argue, under the, to be the play of that role he did in the Trump administration and significantly advanced this pre-crime apparatus that, you know, he helped cover up uh, its creation, you know, back several uh, decades ago. Now let's just go straight into the Oklahoma City bombing. I think that would be good. Okay, so um, Oklahoma City bombing is, is, is an interesting event. I would encourage people, even if you were alive at the time, to go revisit uh, that particular event and some information. There is significant indication that Timothy McVeigh did not act alone and that people that were involved in assisting in executing that event, some of them were protected. There are a lot of unanswered questions about that particular event, okay? And of course, what's interesting in terms of OKC is that you see um, 
a lot of the same groups that were uh, demonized after that attack are the same ones that are sort of the focus now of the current domestic terror strategy, um, which is, uh, you know, militia groups and veterans uh, specifically. Right. So um, that is who now all happen to be kind of pro Trump. You know, they're yeah, they're mm-hmm. they're so, they're selectively anti government now, whereas the people from the OKC era, you know, I mean, at least I mean, I don't know the the actual people involved and what role they actually played, but there but there was some actual like neo-Nazi connections to some of the people involved, like actual neo-Nazis, like militia mm-hmm. people who are unanimously anti every federal you know a- agency. Um, so that's sort of how much the climate has shifted now. Even you almost can't even find those types of groups anymore in the country that didn't, you know, didn't get behind Trump. So that that's just what a comment I want to make there. Yeah. Well, what's interesting too with Oath Keepers or something? I think since January sixth, it came out that either the top guy or like the number two guy there was an informant. Fascinating <laughs> as, as well. So you know, this is very. Um, very interesting because in the past like i was talking about the 60s and chaos and COINTELPRO and stuff the groups that were being heavily infiltrated were predominantly left and so it seems like now it's uh, an effort to uh to do the same with the heavier focus on on the right i it obviously still happens on the left mm-hmm. um but not with you know groups that get together and watch like majority report or <laughs> yeah 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 stuff, okay um <laughs> you know a very different kind of left-wing group um, but it's definitely happening more to groups uh, that have political leanings that previously, like during the Cold War era, weren't the target of this machine, as it were. Um, sure. But going back to OKC, this may be of interest to you, Robbie. Um, the governor of Oklahoma at the time, he'd only been in office just a couple of months. He resurfaces in 2001's uh, bioterror simulation, Dark Winter, to play the governor of the uh, state where the outbreak mm. in that simulation first takes place. And of course, uh, if you're familiar with my work on Dark Winter or the podcast we've done about it um, together, uh, it was a very high level, very suspect national security exercise that even today is legendary in national security circles. And Dick Cheney was briefed personally on it right before uh, the anthrax attacks, among other um, interesting things about Dark Winter, including Dark Winter's own ability to essentially predict uh, what would be the official narrative of the anthrax attacks um, <laughs> several uh, months after. But anyway, it's just interesting that that was the person in charge of the state at the time later gets a... Uh, you know, yeah. uh, picked out of all the potential former governors in the country to be the one that plays the only role of governor that's represented in that exercise. So um, it, not to dwell too much on, on the events of Oklahoma City bombing, I would encourage people to look um, at that event for uh, themselves. And if you're interested in basically a rundown of things that are suspect about it, um, James Corbett at CorbettReport.com has a, a pretty good uh, overview mm-hmm. of that that's not too long in video form. Uh, but anyway, I do want to go over uh, mainly what Biden introduced that I mentioned earlier, this this bill um, that he introduced um, uh, in, uh, in 1995 as a consequence, um, you know, that, that used Oklahoma City bombing as the uh, justification. So originally, it turns out this bill that Biden introduced uh, wasn't initiated by Biden, but by the FBI as a charter to investigate political groups, which is pretty interesting. Um, but I'm just going to go over um, some of the um, 
uh, the key points that were in the bill that Biden introduced, the version he introduced. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of this got taken out and watered down, um, but it's a lot of it's quite significant. So just to go really uh, quickly, um, it would have allowed the FBI, um, the military and other agencies to investigate political groups and causes at their will without... <laughs> Uh, needing any sort of higher up approval, they just get to decide if someone's naughty or seems naughty and go after them. Okay, um, it would it could give you um a, up to a ten year sentence um for in prison for the crime of supporting the lawful activities of an organization if the president uh, declares that organization to be a terrorist. And as I mentioned earlier, this bill would have made it so that the president expressly he alone decides who is a mm. terrorist and that decision, that determination cannot be appealed. Uh, and it can include groups regardless of any legitimate activity they may be involved in. Uh, it can be expressly over ideological grounds, not over like actual uh, <laughs> terror related activity uh, they're undertaking. Okay. Is this the version of the bill that Biden introduced that before it got revised or is this the before finish? it got revised okay. before it got, got it. revised. Okay. This was not it was not passed in this form. But I just want to stress that this was Biden, the current mm -hmm. president back then, who was like, this bill's great. Let's pass it. Yeah. Remember that Biden uh, has also claimed to have been involved in essentially creating the Patriot Act to a significant degree, which um, has a lot of similarities in, in terms of blatant uh, unconstitutionality and, uh, you know, removal of civil liberties with this. So, you know, that's something we see sort of a, in terms of continuity with Biden's career, not to get involved with stuff like, you know, other awful things he did, like the 94 crime bill or um, being best friends with the worst segregationist in Congress and the names of, quote unquote, bipartisanship, among other things. Huh. But, um, well, yeah, he's the only guy, only Democrat that, like, eulogized Trump Thurmond, who was, like, <laughs> the guy that did the longest filibuster in history to prevent the Civil Rights Act from being passed because he, like, couldn't handle, um, you know, people with the wrong skin color from being part of his society. Uh, so you really want to eulogize that guy? Um, I don't know. If you don't vote for me, man, you ain't black. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I just can't even believe that, that <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I have a lot to say about that, um, but for another day. So anyway, um, in the interest of time, I'll just run through some of these pretty quickly. So it also would have uh, loosened rules for wiretaps. Um, it would have reversed uh, the presumption of innocence, so innocent until proven guilty. It would have been uh, reversed if they if the state wanted it to be reversed. Um, it would have removed uh, posse comitatus, meaning it would have allowed the use of the mil uh, the military could be used in domestic law enforcement activity, which is currently illegal. Um, and uh, it would have allowed secret trials for immigrants not charged with a crime. Um, huh. So that's pretty wild. And it would have allowed the use of illegally obtained evidence in those cases. So it doesn't uh, even say uh, illegal immigrants, just immigrants. Yes, and there's actually in this in this uh, bill a very big focus specifically on immigrants, specifically permanent residents. Uh, so it's already well. it's already obviously not 
in in a direct response to the quote unquote domestic nature of the OKC bombing. They're yeah, already it was slipping in. Yeah, it was justified as that, right? And mm-hmm. so it got bipartisan support because something must be done after OKC, okay? But if you read this text, I mean, it's clearly not about going after someone who fits the profile of Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of really awful things. Uh, that were in here. Um, it would have, uh, among other things, also as I mentioned, it suspended posse. It would have suspended posse comitatus and potentially made it legal for soldiers to invade homes and confiscate possessions and what? arrest people without probable cause. That is amazing. That is nuts. And this is what Biden. I'm amazed this didn't come up in the primary, dude. That's some uh, like full on martial law type type stuff. Well, you know, you see continuity here with the people who have been supporting this over time and how they're all sort of coming together now in various guises around this domestic terror strategy, whether under, you know, its origins of the current one under Trump or now under Biden. It's all very um, disturbing, to be honest. What about Um, um, sentencing changes? Was there anything in that bill saying like people who, you know, get slapped with the extra charge of terrorism can now you know, face the death penalty or, or any, anything like that in there? So sentencing, I, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm sure it was pretty much wide open because essentially, you know, this is well before Obama's NDAA allowing indefinite mm-hmm. detention, but this would have allowed that. And it would have allowed what happens like in Israel with, with Palestinians and occupied Palestine, how they can uh, be, they call it like administrative detention in Israel. You can be indefinitely detained without charge. This mm-hmm. would have been allowed uh, in the U.S., uh, including without evidence or probable cause. Jesus. He could have been just indefinitely detained uh, without the option for bail or the option for a timely hearing and be considered guilty until proven innocent, as I mentioned earlier. And they can use illegally obtained uh, evidence. There can be secret trials. I mean, that's just like... That's crazy. Um, yeah, this is mental. So this was basically Biden's bill. And that's why I was saying earlier, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the guy who's in office right now when we're seeing this big... Uh, domestic uh, terror pivot um, and, and, you know, things that happened when he was vice president, for example, that's pretty significant, you know, as well. The fact that some of the stuff that was in this bill that he introduced, like indefinite detention and things like that happened in the Obama era uh, when he was in a very high ranking office at the time. It's it's quite interesting. And also this counterterrorism bill, by the way, talks expressly about international terrorism, despite the fact that it's supposedly uh, the impetus for it is an act of domestic terrorism. So it, it, it's interesting because, of course, we have the pivot uh, after this. The next big event is, of course, 9-11. And, you know, that's international terrorism. But also the international terrorists could be here domestically, you know, so... Well, I think they've rewritten history a little bit. When I say they, I mean just like the media class and the political class. If you, you know, if you go back to the '90s, mid '90s on, they were really hyping up Islamic terrorism and making it seem like it was going to be the next big thing. I mean, even bioterrorism was being hyped up in the '90s. Yeah, in the '90s, there's speeches from Clinton saying that Iraq could send a Scud missile over here tipped with anthrax. Yeah, or or what about the Secretary of State uh, under Clinton, uh, William Cohen, going on like daytime TV? All the all the housewives in the U.S. are watching it, and he pulls out this bag of sugar, and he's like, "This much anthrax on the subway." Holy shit! Everyone. Really? I yeah. Ne- oh wow! I never seen that clip. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, I haven't seen the 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 clip itself, but there's transcripts of oh, it and, and references wow. to it and media reports from the time. It was definitely something that happened, but Disturbing. it just tells you the the extent. Yeah. And so there was um also books coming out from people involved in the WMD claim from the Gulf War, and then later on uh, with the anthrax stuff and and WMDs with Saddam Hussein, who were uh, advising books to be written, like the Cobra Effect, that was. Uh, had this mm-hmm. made up crazy virus called brain pox in it that yeah. turned people into like crazy zombies. And that was given to Bill Clinton to read and uh, supposedly, you know, influenced his concerns about bioterror. Philip Saracen uh, wrote a really good anthrax book that was translated from German where a large section of it goes into sort of that, he doesn't call it pre-programming, but just that idea of how like a piece of fiction can influence like official policy in that direction and just how strange that was leading into the, the anthrax attacks that happened a couple of years after that yeah you know? like this pivot with clinton and uh, the wmds he starts talking about saddam and stuff people forget that that this happened before bush um, and took place under Clinton. But what also took place under under Clinton uh, was something called the National Defense Panel. And this is really when uh, this pivot towards homeland defense uh, became overt among the national security state of the U.S. And what's interesting is that the person credited with authoring and arguing for this pivot towards homeland defense is Richard Armitage, who would go on to serve in the Bush administration in the State Department in a high-ranking capacity, was part of the so-called Vulcans, uh, the group that advised Bush on foreign policy. Um, But Richard Armitage worked on the Phoenix program when he was in Vietnam. Okay, so this is someone who, when they're talking about homeland defense and how the entire U.S. defense apparatus needs to start pivoting towards homeland defense and homeland security, this is someone who was directly involved in the Phoenix program. And Richard Armitage himself denies that, but several people who served with him in Vietnam and politicians who have worked with him over the years or have known him for a long time all say he was part of it. So uh-huh. you decide who you want to believe, right? <laughs> um But what's interesting on the National Defense Panel, um, this particular document, it focuses so much on the year 2020. I think this is a little weird, um, mainly because a lot of times when these documents are written, they'll like be like, you know, several decades in advance from when they're written. Right. So if it's 1997, it'll be 2007 or 2017 or 2027. And this this document is just full of references to 2020. And basically what they say in there is that there's this this urgent need to transform the entire U.S. military and national security state because of competition from China, this huge focus on China. And this comes just months after the creation for the Project of a New American Century. And if you're familiar with them, uh, as I know you are, Robbie, and I'm sure your audience is as well, uh, they're most infamous document, Rebuilding America's Defenses from September 2000, also has this very extreme focus on China. So yep. it's interesting to see the overlap there. And if you're not familiar with Project for a New American Century, of course, some of the people we mentioned earlier that were involved in continuity of government and stuff like this, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, right? They're part of PNAC, Project yes. for a New American Century. And what does this document uh, say the name again of the document that's talking about 2020? 
the National Defense Panel. Okay. Uh, it's their report. So it's technically called Transforming Defense National Security in the 21st Century. And it's, it's the report of the National Defense Panel. And their chapters, their first three, there, there's five chapters. Okay, so the first chapter is The World in 2020. Second chapter, U.S. National Security in 2020. And the third chapter is Meeting National Security Challenges of 2020. So it's entirely focused on 2020. But it says national security in the 21st century. I just find the focus on that particular year interesting because, of course, you know, um, it's the year when a lot of things in, changed dramatically um, in the world and in relation to national security, in relation to U.S.-China policy specifically. Um, it, it, we move away from the Russia, Russia, Russia to China. Um, and this is, of course, what this document was talking about, China, nonstop. Um, and some other similarities that I think are a little weird, but basically what's imp important in the context of this discussion um, is that this is the first time when the when group people involved, people that are part of the national security state openly signal that there's going to be a pivot towards homeland defense um, or, or homeland security. And this phrase enters the national security lexicon and begins to be used ad nauseum. And so you have like uh, think tanks that have been around for a long time uh, like Answer, which is originally a spinoff of, I think, Rand Corporation or something like that. You know, they create their Institute of Homeland Security after this. And of course, it's that Institute for Homeland Security Answer that, like, for example, is the main host of Dark Winter. Um, at the time they make their Institute for Homeland Security Answer is being run by a top ex-CIA official. She went directly from a top post at the CIA, one of the top posts, um, like one of the 10 most powerful people in the CIA, basically, uh, to running answer during this period. And then you have uh, the Hart-Rudman Commission um, take place in this period as well after this initial uh, pivot. And there's a lot of stuff that's significant about that. Um, so technically, the Hart-Rudman Commission is an, the official name of it was the U.S. Commission on National Security in the 21st Century, which, you know, is very similar to the policy document that came out of the National Defense Panel. Um, and it was first commissioned, I think, in 1998, but they wrote several reports leading up to just a couple months before 9-11. Uh, um, so the first document, uh, in the end, they wrote three reports. So the first report they talked about, they just uh, emphasize, you know, uh, they say things like, we should expect conflicts where our adversaries, because of cultures so different from ours, uh, that they'll resort to forms and levels of violence that will shock our sensibilities and stuff like this. Um and they have a lot of overlap with stuff that actually pops up in this uh, uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses document from PNAC, like space uh, will, will be the, the this new critical competitive military environment, um, which, you know, Rebuilding America's Defenses has a, has a whole massive chapter dedicated to. Um, but they talk about... Um, they sort of like signal 9-11 in a sense. They say uh, America will soon be vulnerable to hostile attack on our homeland. Our military superiority won't tell us. Not even excellent intelligence will prevent all surprises. There's new vulnerabilities uh, in, in all of this stuff. And they keep saying like there's going to be an attack on the homeland soon. Essentially, they, they drive that home uh, uh, consistently. And uh, this is something that, that pops up in some of, the, some of the other reports as well. So like in the second uh, one, they talk about uh, in the 21st century, the gravest threats to the U.S. Uh, will be WMDs and terrorism. You know, this was written um, in 2000 uh, before 9-11. 
and um, and then says that uh, they foresee the U.S. Uh, basically uh, intervening in in countries more militarily uh, without the consent of the international community to manage the problem of failed states. And of course, this happens uh, to a significant degree in the post 9-11 era, um, all of it justified under the you know, authorization for military force for Afghanistan and Iraq and then applying that to countries that aren't Afghanistan and Iraq and stuff. Um, and the third one's pretty significant too. It was written at the at the end of January two thousand one, uh, and it talks about imp uh, the the subtitle is uh, imperative for change, um, talking about you know essential reforms, and it's all about ensuring the security of the homeland at all costs, and calls for the creation of what is now DHS, but was originally called the National Homeland Security Agency or NHSA. And a few months after this report was written, the bill. Uh, to create that agency was introduced. I can't remember the exact month. Um, it was either like March or May, something like that, but it was um, well before 9-11. And at the time, there was a very lively debate about, we don't need this agency. You know, we don't need a new, whole new government agency for this and all that stuff we already have. You know, uh, the FBI is a technically a domestic intelligence law enforcement agency and, you know, all these different uh, law enforcement and, you know, all, all these other uh, other groups. We don't need a whole new thing. And then, of course, that tune totally changes with 9-11. Um, it also says the National Guard must make Homeland Security its primary mission. Um, it calls for, you know, what DHS would become uh, to oversee lots of military activities um, and, and a lot of um, other, you know, interesting, uh, interesting things. Uh, pop up in these documents. So there there are a lot of um, uh, things there, but what's also important are, are the members <laughs> that wrote this. So like probably the most familiar name on this list of people today is going to be Newt Gingrich, who was one of the commissioners, right? Um, Who's not usually associated people. with this kind of stuff. He, w he became so pro-Trump, you know, that people forget that he was, um, <laughs> yeah. what he was doing back in the 90s. Right. So, um, one person I do want to point out uh, that was a commissioner is Norm Augustine. Uh, he's a longtime uh, chairman of Lockheed Martin. He was also, uh, I think, undersecretary of the Army uh, in the late 70s. Uh, but he's also the guy the CIA tapped to create NQTEL, the CIA venture capital arm, for them, uh, which is pretty significant. That's a lot of military uh, industrial intelligence complex connections uh, for one dude. Um, you have a lot of uh, army generals, obviously. Um, you have uh, people that served uh, uh, in the Defense Department, State Department involved in this. Uh, but another guy that I think is really interesting is this guy, uh, James, uh, I always pronounce his name wrong. I think it's uh, Schlesinger. Anyway, he uh, was Secretary of Defense under Nixon and Ford. He was also a CIA director, okay? And at the time of, uh, the, on this commission and at the time of 9-11, he was the head of the MITRE Corporation. And if you're familiar with um, the controversies around 9-11 and NORAD, um, you will probably know the name of MITRE, that they were the only contractor uh, there that could have been in a position to have caused something to go wrong with NORAD besides P-TECH, uh, potentially in concert with P-TECH. If you're not familiar with P-TECH, I would encourage you to go look up um, video interviews with uh, Indra Singh, I believe her name is, uh, who has, um, you know, had a personal experience with P-TECH before 9-11, but it's quite a um, 
disturbing story there, but I don't want to get uh, too involved in that because we won't uh, have a lot of time. But then you also have uh, Lee Hamilton on there who later becomes, uh, I think, the vice chair of the 9-11 Commission, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so you have a lot of people who end up um, popping uh, into prominent roles or serving in, in key uh, positions uh, at the time of their um, you know, at the time, you know, 9-11 and stuff takes place. And then you, um, you have people like involved with Wells Fargo, uh, Rand Corporation, the, the military and stuff. And then you have like Newt Gingrich, right? <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. Um, but anyway, so that's essentially what the Hart Redmond Commission was. There are people on there that had very interesting, uh, role, but essentially it was really the military intelligence, uh, in, in industrial intelligence complex, if you will, the MIIC that was really responsible for um, a lot of this output. And um, uh, I think I already uh, covered on everything there. Anything you want to say about 9-11? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, to me, one of the more forgotten aspects of, let's just say right after 9-11 was the announcement of the creation of a new agency uh, called Total Information Awareness. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just on a psychological level, the the name already, you know, is kind of chilling and sends a message, but the logo for it uh, was so over the top. I mean, yeah. it almost seemed like it was designed <laughs> to provoke conspiracy theorists' paranoia. Well, and, you it know, did. It harkens it back. <laughs> well, it reminds me of what's happening now where it's just like they're, the Biden administration just sends Jen Psaki out to say that, yeah, we're working with Facebook to – to take down like extreme content or COVID, you know, misinformation about COVID. It's like, they're not even, it doesn't seem like they're even worried about making people paranoid, which makes me think, are they trying to make people paranoid? So, you know, I know you've done, you know, research on total information awareness and sort of, we have this understanding that, Oh, uh, there was such a bad reaction to it that they shut it down. Well, obviously that's not the case. They just sort yeah. of quietly took it out of public view. Now, what, what did that turn into and, and what was total information awareness? And just so people who don't know out there, the logo is literally the all seeing eye from like the back of the dollar bill shooting On a the beam. Pyramid. Yeah. yeah. Shooting uh -huh. a beam onto the planet earth, like encompassing the whole planet. It. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So yeah. So basically total information awareness was a, a part of a, the main program of what was called the information awareness office or IAO that was uh, a set up at DARPA, which is uh, the defense advanced research project agency of the Pentagon, the uh, Orwellian uh, futurist uh, dystopian <laughs> research <laughs> arm of the Pentagon. Really. When you look at most of the stuff they've researched over the years, um, They've attempted to do a facelift uh, recently under under uh, the co during the COVID era um, because of you know research that they promote as as being related to healthcare. But you have to keep in mind this is the military and their program managers openly say this while they'll advertise you know their programs as having some sort of um uh you know doing some sort of public good. They are always double edged swords, and the stuff they claim will like uh, improve people's health can also be weaponized <laughs> against them. Um, you know, so I, I just want to point that out about DARPA. Um, so basically total information awareness was just, a, a basically a huge dragnet surveillance program that would have given, uh, this particular program and DARPA, uh, the ability to, uh, not only, 
uh, sweep up just insane uh, amounts of data and just excessively data mine uh, everything innocent Americans were doing for really any reason and collate it um, in one place, but also use that to predict trends and had a very strong pre-crime element to it. It also had a biosurveillance program as well that claimed to be able, um, it didn't get off the ground, obviously, um, because this whole whole deal was shut down uh, a couple months after it launched, essentially, because of um, the controversy, but claimed that it would have been able to prevent bioterror attacks and also pandemics before they took place, um, which is um, interesting as well, um, because, of course, there's this big photo. This is also in the wake of the anthrax attack. So what's important here is that the person who was put in charge of the Information Awareness Office and Total Information Awareness was John Poindexter. And John Poindexter was the highest ranking member of the Reagan administration charged as an Iran-Contra conspirator and pardoned by Bill Barr. Okay, so this is one of the people involved in continuity of government in main core that we talked about earlier is the guy put in charge of this thing with the most like blatantly insane conspiracy theorist triggering logo <laughs> to ever exist, basically. That's um, great. You know, and obviously given the Iran Contra stuff, that was a massive abuse of power and also involved efforts to target domestic dissidents and quote unquote subversives. And this is the guy put in charge of this program and they claim, oh, it's only to stop terrorism. Well, yeah, okay, you put John freaking Poindexter in charge. So what do you think is like going to happen, you know? So, so anyway, a little bit less bad than um, having Henry Kissinger to be appointed as head of the 9-11 Commission. <laughs> yeah, it's basically on the same level, okay? It's basically the same thing. Um, so what happens is that this is shut down because of controversy, but then the people involved that wanted to bring this to fruition realize that the controversy was because the government was involved. And so essentially what happens is that efforts are made to basically recreate total information awareness and all the capabilities it would have had as a completely private company. Okay. Mm -hmm. So total information awareness was actually a public private partnership. It, it involved private companies. It wasn't just DARPA. It was DARPA working with private sector partners, not unlike DHS today and their fusion centers, as I mentioned earlier, also works with the private sector, which you could argue from the off makes a lot of this domestic terror apparatus or homeland security apparatus uh, fascistic in nature uh, because it's the, the public sector and the private sector working together uh, for authoritarian uh, purposes. So what's fascinating is that this private company is Palantir. And we know this because uh, Peter Thiel, who created Palantir, teamed up with Richard Pearl, the crazy neocon who used to be involved for Project for a New mm -hmm. American Century, worked in the Reagan administration, uh, architect of the Iraq War, responsible for lots and lots of awful things. Um, he, he is working with Richard Pearl to create Palantir, and Peter Thiel and Richard Pearl expressly go to John Poindexter and Peter Thiel and Alex Karp, who's the CEO of Palantir today, uh, go and they pick John Poindexter's brain about how to make total, you know, what total information awareness was, what they were trying to do, and about how they can make that a reality. So there is direct continuity between total information awareness in Palantir. And this is coming from like mainstream media sources and articles from the period that are like long forgotten now. Okay. And Peter Thiel today has, you know, oh, he's a libertarian and all his friends are on the intellectual dark web and Eric Weinstein works for him and, you know, goes on Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and all these guys. Oh, they're so cool. The whole Thielverse. 
Um, and yeah, okay. So basically, Peter Thiel. I love those guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, so basically, Peter Thiel is like the new. You could argue that that whole sphere that is around him, okay, are really a continuation of the. They're sort of like the new generation of neocons, you could argue, but they have rebranded to be cool and, you know, uh, anti-establishment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I would argue that's a branding exercise because why the hell would you go to someone like John Poindexter and be like, let me make your uh, nightmarish dystopian DARPA program, a private sector reality. Um, if you are anti-establishment and I do want to stress today that despite being quote unquote anti-establishment Palantir contracts with all 17 U S intelligence agencies, um, much of uh, many other U.S. federal agencies as well, and also manages all of the U.S. government's COVID-19 data, health data. Now they manage health data for HHS. They manage all of the data. And all of the stuff that Palantir gathers, as I mentioned earlier, if your name is put on the main core list, it all goes in there. It all goes in there. And a lot of stuff that they uh, extract, that, that, that they data mine comes from open source stuff like social media and whatever. Um, if you read my article on Unlimited Hangout called The Military Origins of Facebook, you will know that when uh, Peter Thiel was setting up Palantir, he invested and shaped the early form of Facebook to expressly model another DARPA program from the Information Awareness Office that was called LifeLog and is literally what Facebook is today. Um, so, you know, this is stuff that has been framed very differently in the public and these, the history of these companies has been framed as something very different than what it actually is. Um, and more often than not, with a lot of these Silicon Valley companies and a lot of these Silicon Valley billionaires, uh, from the very beginning, they have been intimately involved with the national security state to a highly significant degree. So that makes it very hard for them to argue, especially in the case of Facebook, for example, you know, people say, oh, well, they can censor whatever they want because they're a private company. How many times have we heard this? Okay, well, are they really uh, that much of a private company when they are that intimately involved from their origins onward with the national security state? Um, just essentially being the privatized arm of uh, neocon wet dreams. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah, I mean, just that the, when the Snowden leaks happened at the time, I remember thinking Prism was this really important thing that basically blew open the fact that the government was uh, sort of using shady tactics to extract data from these companies. But to me, it just becomes more obvious over time. They've been working together the whole time. It's not like, you know, remember when that big deal was made over the fact that Apple wouldn't help the FBI unlock the phone of the suspects in the San Bernardino shootings and it seemed like they made it seem like they were taking this big stand against the government's yeah, overreach. I would argue that's PR. No, I, today, I agree. For example, governments can buy stuff like NSO groups, Pegasus and get past all that crap. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that <laughs> yeah. that's what's really going on here is these companies. That's why this fight against big tech that's happening in the political sort of theater uh, area theater. of DC right mm -hmm. now feels, yeah, it just feels like really disingenuous because who knows how many of these people are actually in bed with these companies and, well, I mean, dude, uh, Google, Microsoft, Palantir, all of these guys are government contractors or, and or military contractors. Yeah. Okay, They have like massive conflicts of interest with the government. Even Amazon, for example, they provide uh, the whole cloud space to the CIA and, to, and intelligence community. 
you know, that's why people say that, um, you know, Jeff Bezos has a massive, in the Washington Post, by him owning it, has a massive conflict of interest with the CIA uh, mm-hmm. of hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, the, the, they are intimately connected. And if you look at who um, was essentially responsible for creating the national security uh, state's approach to artificial intelligence um, over the past uh, two years or so. Uh, that was headed by Eric Schmidt, former head of Google. And you have the top officials from Amazon, from Microsoft, from all of these guys. They're shaping this policy for the national security state. Okay, so they're like very involved. Uh, it's very hard to say that you know, oh, we have to, uh, you know, they're naughty private companies, you know, a lot, they they are intimately involved with what the U.S. government does. Um, There's just no getting around it, but it's often uh, left out of the narrative, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And they make it seem like, um, you know, like Facebook as anti-American and they're controlled by China as a narrative. We, we sort of hear that from the right, but I mean, Uh, it does seem like regardless of who's in power, you know, they'll help They'll help work with the federal government to, you know, whatever you want to call it, get rid of misinformation or. Well, they, they did with the Snowden leaks, though. Like we know that like all these companies were freely sharing information with the NSA, even though it was illegal. And this started from the very beginning, you know, after 9-11 with like uh, some of these earlier ones, uh, like Stellar Winds and some of those earlier NSA yeah. ops. Like are the AT&T uh, hubs where they were just the NSA was allowed to just come in and take yeah. everything from the whole pipe of data going yeah. through the local so internet. You ha- exactly. So you have the telecom communities being involved with that. You have like Google and Microsoft and those companies being involved with it, Facebook as well. And then you have even like hardware producers like Hewlett Packard, HP, having arguably one of the closest collaborations with the CIA and the NSA, um, you know, after 9-11. Uh, it started in 2004. Um, and, uh, the, the head of Hewlett Packard at the time, I think her name is, uh, uh, last name is Fiorina. She tried to run in a Republican primary pretty recently. Anyway, she's like one of these CIA linked, um, uh, tech executives, Uh um, and has a very cozy relationship uh, with the intelligence community. Um, and a lot of these like, uh, Silicon Valley guys too also serve on like different, um, like, like the defense innovation panel and like things like this or uh, the intelligence advisory board and like things like that, you know, I mean, it's just very common for that to happen and it doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, But they're, I mean, they're, they've essentially fused. And I argue this in a lot of my work in a lot of interviews at Silicon Valley um, and the national security state are fused. Now you can, we can argue about when it exactly happened. I would argue it's been several years minimum um, but it's definitely something going on now. And I think that's very significant when you consider the current domestic strategy, this long decades long focus on those types of strategies and wars on domestic dissidents um, being uh, centered around technology and databases and look how involved all the tech companies are, um, you know, with uh, the government now, specifically the entities of the government aiming to do this. Um, yeah, it's it's quite unsettling. Yeah. And I mean, on some level, it just does seem like they don't care if they're making, you know, boomers who are watching Fox News every day think that they're, you know, being especially targeted now by like the feds because they, they're too right wing or something like Mm -hmm. that's, and it's such a weird thing that they'd want to go that far with it. Um, you know, and, and it's hard to tell if that's part of the intention or not. Um, but 
Yeah, it's a, it's 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 just. But I I get especially alarmed when I see people on the left, you know, really trying to pressure other people into calling. Uh, all these people who went into the Capitol building on January 6th, domestic terrorists. I mean, the pressure to use uh, language like that to me is is one of the most chilling parts of this. And I think that that's ultimately yeah, what's so tragic about this is it's almost like they're pitting us against each other in the sense that they, it's almost like they want us to become the Stasi-like society. Um, and, I, and I think that's going to be part of how this mechanism you know, to quote unquote, stop domestic terrorism will work. I mean, that's one of the the functions of it is to make people act like they're the feds, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and want to like rat out their neighbors or be suspicious of their neighbors, um, you know, from both well, sides the, of the, the climate spectrum. we have now, though, I think it facilitates that to a degree. Like, I think there are pe- more people like that willing to do that now than there ever have been in the US. Yeah, oh, I agree. Maybe since the Red Scare. I mean, COVID made it even that much I know. Mm-hmm. more terrible. I mean, the vaccine uh, politicization, the mask politicization, all that stuff is just making it come to a head even worse. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you want to just end this with some final thoughts, Whitney, on on where you think this is most dangerous right now with the Biden administration and like what we should be most concerned about? Yeah. So um, one thing, there, there is another program that started under Trump and is, is didn't get off the ground. But okay. Biden is making it that I do want to touch on. But sure. it, it, it just basically focuses on what I think one of the ways to combat this is. And I think probably, you know, you know, looking at this, it can sound really scary. Um, it is scary um, that the government would do this. But we have to keep in mind, you know, what faction of the government was responsible. I think it's um a testament to why it's so important to acknowledge um, the facts about 9-11 and not, you know, uh, give continue to give in to this dogma that it's so naughty and awful and bad to have any questions about the official narrative, um, because we really have to understand the real history here of, of not just from 9-11 to now, but the past several years and the role 9-11 plays in taking us um where we are now. Um, So I think, you know, there needs to be a shift there um, and people that haven't been willing to question it before for careerist ends in in media. uh, These people need to realize that people on independent media, period, if you've ever spoken out publicly against the establishment, even one time, you are probably on the shit list. And our best chance for us in, in media is to denounce this and denounce the agenda, the people responsible, how long this has been going on and uh, openly acknowledging that something very, very suspect and, 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 and dark happened on September 11th, 2001, I think is a big part of that. Um, but in addition, things that can be done and that need to be done, I think there needs to be an, a mass exodus from social media platforms um, and, you know, it's harder for people like you and me, Robbie, because we have to distribute content some, somehow. So like, you know, uh, you and I, like we said earlier, you know, we're probably already on the shit list. Um, and so, you know, uh, for, for me anyway, like, you know, I don't use Facebook, but I do have a Twitter and it's just, you know, cause otherwise my work isn't going to get seen by people because people are still using it. 
But, you know, if you are listening to this and this stuff concerns you, social media, specifically the mainstream ones like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or whatever, play a huge role in this war on domestic terror as it's being set up. A huge role. And, you know, part of what I mentioned earlier, I encourage you to read my article on the origins of Facebook and, and all of that, because it's very instructive about what's happening right now and the role social media had, was meant to play from the beginning in this. If you look at the DARPA program that Facebook is essentially based off of called LifeLog, it's very clear it was meant to complement total information awareness. Um, and now we're seeing you know, Facebook do stuff like, oh, do you think you've seen extremist content? Get support, you know, and that's like a piloting feature. How far will that go? Like, you have been reported to the authorities because you viewed extremist content. Like, I mean, that's like a segue to that in, in a sense. Um, very disturbing stuff. Okay, so I would argue that people that are alarmed by this, um, delete your Facebook and your Instagram and your Twitter and all this stuff because you are feeding the domestic terror machine. Um, if you still want to follow people on like Twitter or whatever, make like a burner account and don't like or comment on anything. <laughs> <laughs> really, because I mean, they're data mining all their stuff for the war on domestic terror off of this stuff. If there is enough people that say, we don't support that. I mean, you can just do it passively by, by, you know, basically disentangling yourself as much as possible from legacy social media, you could say, maybe moving to other platforms. People have talked about this for a long time because of the censorship thing, but I really think it's important to point out that it's a way to combat the infrastructure of this war on domestic terror they're setting up. And so this takes me to this program I forgot to mention. That's the uh, HARPA as it was called. <laughs> uh, this is essentially another DARPA program being rebranded, but they're rebranding it as a healthcare thing. It was pitched under Trump as a way to stop mass shootings before they happen after the spate of mass shootings happened, including the one in um, Garland, Texas, and the El Paso Walmart shooting. Uh, and the way they, uh, basically HARPA's uh, flagship program as it was pitched under Trump and apparently had a lot of support from Kushner uh, Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka. Um, it was called Safe Homes, and it was all going to be about um, tracking warning signs about the mental health of social media users and, and using AI, artificial intelligence, to analyze social media posts. And if you uh, trigger the algorithm, you know, they can come and do all this stuff under HARPA. Um, they can question you, they can force you to undergo mental health treatment as deemed necessary by the state. They can detain you. They can put you under house arrest. That was how this program was being pitched under Trump. Um, suppose, and this is a clearly pre-crime program. This is to stop mass shootings before they strike based on your social media posts. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, HARPA, the same people, um, is openly said by the Biden administration it's something they're going to create. They, they've said they may not call it HARPA, they're going to call it ARPA-H, but their justification for it is totally different. So it was being pitched under Trump, um, you know, for that reason, but under Biden, they're using a different excuse saying it's about healthcare expressly, okay? But that Safe Homes program that I mentioned earlier was also supposed to be about healthcare ostensibly, but mental health, right? So this is the same program because the people behind this are Jeffrey Ling, a former head uh, of, uh, I think it was DARPA's Biological Technologies Office, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then Bob Wright, who's the former head of NBC Universal and was a close friend to Trump, um, but also has ties uh, to the DNC and whatnot. 
so Biden said they're going to make this essentially. Um, and it's the same program. It's the same people behind it. So safe homes will be included. And that's supposed to be their flagship program. You know, Biden saying, oh, this will allow us to cure cancer is how he's publicly selling it. So I guess differentiate it from the sales pitch <laughs> under Trump. But it's the same organization. It's pre-crime in a sense, or at least has, you know, the programs that they want to start with, with it have clear pre-crime functionality, not unlike things like total information awareness and a lot of other things that have come out of DARPA do as well. So um, I just, you know, that's just another example of how this is a bipartisan agenda that has gone on for decades and decades and decades guided by the national security state. It's been advanced by, you know, just in the past 20 years, it's been advanced by, um, to a huge degree by Bush and then to a huge degree under Obama and then Trump and now Biden, right? This is not something that has changed uh, the march toward where we are right now with this new war on domestic terror. That, you know, the march towards that has been consistent through every presidential administration, no matter how the president was publicly treated by the media or framed, you know, populist or anti-establishment or whatever, you know, like Obama was framed as like the progressive savior and, and Trump is the populist savior for the, the right or whatever, you know. I mean, they did all of this stuff too, Biden and Bush uh, as well, you know, Clinton. I mean, it goes back a really long time, okay. So this has been something that's been in the works for a long time. And what's really concerning now, what we were talking about earlier, this sort of effort to engineer some sort of civil war. Well, if you instigate that type of breakdown, then you can institute this stuff. And they've been setting it up for a long time. And if they are pushing on the fault lines and creating and have been creating those fault lines and exacerbating them over a series of years, you know, it, it clearly seems like they are pushing towards the rupturing of those at some point. And when that point is reached, you know, this infrastructure, it's very hard to see them not have it go live. I mean, they'll justify it under continuity of government or other means. Uh, but you have a big enough crisis. I mean, uh, the plans are on the books. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's naive and foolish to think that the United States government, who's in control of the biggest empire on the planet, that overthrows all these other governments around the world and that stifles dissent all over the rest of the world, yeah, wouldn't you know, ultimately have some contingency plan for basically stopping any form of like people's revolution. That's why I keep telling people that obviously this idea of like populism, whether it's right-wing populism or even left-wing populism is going to be co-opted immediately if it gets off the ground by these entities. They're very good at co-opting things now, making it seem like you know, they represent the people like Trump did trick a lot of people into thinking that he was truly a representative of, of the people. Um, a lot of people really bought into that. Um, and, you know, and he was convincing at times because he acted like everybody in the establishment was was bad and corrupt. But in the end, it, it doesn't it didn't really mean or amount to anything. So I, I just think uh, people need to know that this country you know, like you were saying earlier, Whitney, about the Phoenix program and stuff, there's a lot of people who are under this naive impression now that the CIA is not like that anymore and the FBI doesn't, you know, Ooh, act like that anymore. Naive. It's so I don't think it gets more naive no, than that, dude. <laughs> it's it's one of the most ridiculous things to believe. If anything, it's more sophisticated now and harder to actually detect. And that's I think the most concerning thing, especially when you combine data mining and machine learning and Silicon Valley technologies with what the federal government's already doing. I mean, all that stuff combined, 
it just makes their job so much easier. And yeah, well, I, what's I, really crazy about that, though? So you remember how I talked about the Biden terror bill, right? And it was going to be the president who decides who the terrorist and who isn't. Yeah, actually. And it's unappealable. Now that's going to be artificial intelligence. That is unappealable. Nice. So Skynet for domestic terrorism. Basically, yeah, because artificial intelligence, you know, we don't really have a lot of insight into how it reaches its decisions. It's just a computer says no or computer says yes type of scenario, right? So, you know, you're essentially having training this algorithm and all this data and you're being like, okay, these people, X, you know, here, here and here and here, et cetera, are terrorists to learn to identify them, right? And so it, it, it becomes up to the algorithm at the end of the day. And, and that's what they're doing here. It's wild. Let's just hope there's not a lib or some official that's from the left that gets on television and says that, we, you know, that we need to start like drone striking people who are criticizing the vaccine based on a, an artificial intelligence and it's monitoring their social media posts. I mean, I'm not saying that that's how bad things already are, but... It does just seem like we're in such a crazy polarized environment right now where I see even people that I know in real life on social media who are saying, yeah, yeah, anybody saying the vaccine is dangerous, like, fuck them. They're they're killing people like, you know, not saying they should be thrown in jail, but saying, you know, totally advocating for deplatforming, just taking drawing this line in the sand as if anything veering off of that, you know, dogmatic narrative about covid is is like you're playing with people's lives. And it's like, this is just not how things should be. We should be able to discuss these things. I'm not saying pull a Brett Weinstein and 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 suspiciously, you know, double down on ivermectin as if it's the cure and, and, and make yourself seem like a renegade. I just mean, you know, just having discussions about it and not, um, you know, not feeling afraid because I do think a lot of this is psychological and self-censorship. That's part of the war on domestic terror as well. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be seen, you know, even just in the Bay Area, there's people who don't want to be mistaken for a Trumper even after the mask mandate is gone. You know, so they'll wear a mask just to because of the social pressure that's that extends to this whole idea of domestic terrorism, because it's like you don't want to be seen as a a, an extremist or a domestic terrorist. But then if the line is so blurry, where, you know, how do you even know where it is? Then you'll just end up. Changing the way you think, changing the way you behave, yeah, changing what yeah, you post yeah. online, you know? Yeah, well, I think it's also part of why we're here, and this happens on the on the left and also, like, on the right in, like, QAnon circles. There's, like, an inability to have dis- evidence-based discussions about stuff. Like, it, it's it, the, the, the dialogue has become so, like, emotion-based that, like, if someone says something, even if it's factual, that conflicts with you know what people in these particular groups like believe in their worldview there's no way to get around that you mm-hmm. know it's just like oh no you fuck off like you're part you know on the q and side you're part of the cabal or on you know the left side like you're you know a crazy i don't know q and white supremacist whatever anti-vaxxer like all this stuff that'll that'll get uh thrown around but you know really uh you know it's very hard to find uh, Americans these days that are willing to have, and it's not just the U.S., like the U.K. is like this too, uh, rational discourse about topics um, and be like, well, what do you think about this? What do you think? I mean, that type of calm discussion, it doesn't really happen anymore. And I think part of the problem for this too is that in independent media, even now, a lot of the big names um, are involved. Like a lot of their, the videos they do can just be really 
uh, contentious, like interpersonal stuff or sort of like clickbaity stuff or, you know, doesn't really uh, facilitate that type of rational evidence-based discussion uh, that is very absent in, in American political life today. Um, you know, and I think that is really problematic personally. I guess you want to leave the audience with any final thoughts or. Yeah. So, um, a lot of what we've been talking about today, you know, it's, uh, obviously like you were saying, Robbie, if, if you want to challenge the, like, like the U S government to a degree, it's very clear at this point that the electoral system, they're not going to let that work. Um, you know, in terms of letting an actual candidate who will bring change get in office. And even if someone who, you know, were to get into the office of president who would want to do that, it's very hard for them because of just how insanely powerful the national security state is. And now Silicon Valley through Microsoft's election guard is taking over the election system, um, essentially under Biden, that's getting no coverage. Okay, so like, conventional means of fighting this are sort of running out. And these continuity of government plans are very concerning. I would argue that the way to do it is either a buyout of uh, a boycott of like these social media platforms they're using to feed this um, or boycotts of another nature or some sort of, you know, opting out of, of a, a lot of these systems that are being used to create basically uh, a Phoenix program equivalent in the United States. And I think a lot of these, um, the solutions to these problems can just be done, you know, uh, there are pe more quote unquote passive, I could say, uh, ways to resist that don't involve uh, you putting your neck on there and going toe to toe with police and getting, you know, caught up on a list or who knows. Uh, I mean, some of these anti-protest laws that have passed in paces like Florida after what happened last summer with Black Lives Matters and stuff are totally nuts. Okay, so like they, they, they're criminalizing protests more than ever and all of this stuff. We have to start getting local and getting creative about the ways to resist that aren't going to put people um, in the line of fire because a lot of people don't want to do that. So we need to start thinking um, about that. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to uh, localism and, you know, uh, things that you can do that don't necessarily, you know, involve you leaving your home even like, you know, um, uh, changing how you use technology, what kind of technology you use, what kind of services from Silicon Valley um, you use and, um, um, you know, uh, not supporting corporations like Amazon, for example, that are extremely predatory and involved in this. A lot of people just, you know, Amazon Prime and whatever. I mean, it's really time uh, to make adjustments out of that um, for a variety of reasons, you know. So I think it's really time, considering where we are, uh, to start doing that um, to a significant degree. So um, uh, I could go in, more in, in, in depth on it, but it is uh, pretty late here, so I should probably start thinking about uh going to bed soon so i'll i'll just probably uh end with that well thank you for um giving us so much of your time today whitney uh you're always a a library of information so really appreciate everything you do and uh thanks for having this conversation today well thanks for the opportunity because you know you guys have a have a, a more left-leaning audience uh and i think it's this is a really important topic and isn't getting talked about enough in progressive media um, even in independent media, unfortunately. And I think that really needs to change. And if you're listening and feel that way, I would encourage you to prompt some um, of your favorite and bigger name commentators uh, on the left or that lean progressive to cover these issues that are going to affect literally all of us um, because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that's very uh, bad and uh, has very just insane implications. 
that, you know, if this stuff is allowed to happen, it will be very hard to reverse, okay? So, like, there are, you know, wagging your finger at mainstream media or, like, Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders and all that stuff is, is fine and good, okay? But there's, like, real shit's going down. <laughs> so we, like, need to get our head in the game a little bit and, and focus on that to a degree. And there are things that need to be brought to a wider audience, and I definitely think this is one of them. I agree completely, Whitney. Well, thank you again for coming on Media Roots Radio. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Robbie.